He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, September 12, 2020. Another week when Donald Trump helped make the case against himself. Have you heard the Woodward tapes? I really saw something in Donald Trump I've rarely seen. He treated Bob Woodward with dignity and respect. He told him the truth, Bob, this is bad. Five times worse than the most strident flu. This is bad. It's airborne, Bob. Why couldn't he give us the same dignity and respect? And then Woodward asked Donald Trump, hey, how come you're telling the American people not to worry? Why did you change your tune? And Donald Trump said, Bob Woodward, I wanted to play it down. This is the all-time cheater in golf, the irony, we had Rick Riley on to say, I'm going to play it down, which means you're going to be fair if you're a golfer. But here he was going to not tell the American people how bad it was because he did not want to panic them. Yeah, right. He did not want to panic the market. He did not want to panic himself. He lied to us to the detriment of ourselves, our families, our schools our everything. And now he wants to be reelected? I don't think so. Neither do my guests. What a guest lineup I have. Joe Walsh ran against Donald Trump. Joe Walsh is a true conservative, although he's rethinking things like climate change. He's followed by Gene Guerrero. Gene Guerrero, an author who wrote Hatemonger about Stephen Miller. What a despicable creep that guy is. How did he get to be that way? Wait till you hear the true story of Stephen Miller. And it flows through talk radio, just like Joe Walsh was on talk radio. What a great guest he was when I had him on back in the day. I wonder why nobody has him on Denver Trump radio. Cole West would be a good guest on Denver Trump radio, only he does not support Donald Trump. Cole West was part of legislative leadership up until recently. There was that blue wave of 2018. Gosh, I hope that wave continues. Cole West makes a big announcement on my show. He's going to vote for Joe Biden and Cory Gardner. Why? You have to listen to him on Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. You don't have to, but if you want to skip ahead, do it. He's batting number three right before my troubadour, who sings a great song called Give It Up. Apropos of a stalwart Republican like Cole West, after so many years of voting Republican for president, he's got to give it up now based on the conduct of Donald Trump. Same with Joe Walsh. He explains it right here. My first guest, the former Congressman from the state of Illinois, Joe Walsh. 
Hey, Joe Walsh. Good to talk to you. For people who do not know Joe Walsh, where have you been? He is a former congressman from the state of Illinois. He's a Republican. At least he was. Joe Walsh (laughs) was also a Salem media host. I had a Saturday gig with Salem, but Joe had syndication and all of that. Joe, tell everybody your story. Yeah, I was on around the country in a number of markets. And then Donald Trump entered the scene. And as soon as Donald Trump became president, Salem basically told all their national hosts, you all need to line up and get on Team Trump, baby. You need to say only good things about Donald Trump. I couldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. And so I really didn't last there. People like Hugh Hugh and Dennis Prager, they lined up like good boys. It wasn't just me, though, Craig. Remember a name, Michael Medved. Michael Medved refused to tow the company line as well. And so he ultimately parted from Salem, and and I did as well, because you've done radio. Why would you have a radio show if you can't speak the truth? Well, you can speak the truth, but you will be ostracized by the company and the people who work there. I work yes. for a guy, well, really, Peter Boyles runs 710 KNUS, and he fell in love with Donald Trump, and he hates Republicans. So that was interesting. But Brian Taylor, who's ostensibly the general manager of Salem, Colorado, one day I said, how about this Joe Walsh? I kind of like him. He's out of Chicago, and he, he shook his head. He shook his head, indicating that that was not the corporate position. Oh, my God, Craig. I mean, again, I'm not exaggerating in that after Donald Trump got elected and it became clear. Uh, and look, you and I have talked. I voted for Trump in 16, not because I loved him or liked him. He wasn't Hillary. I figured he's just kind of a goof, a jerk. Maybe a couple good things might happen. Then when I really started to pay attention to Trump after he won, I said, there's no way I can support this guy. But every single week, Salem would bust my chops to get with the playbook, get on team Trump. And I couldn't do it. And that makes life very difficult. Look, I was in Congress as well. Craig, I've told you, most of my former Republican colleagues in Congress, most of them don't like Trump. They don't say anything because they're afraid they want to get reelected. Most of these guys on the radio, they all, you know, sing Trump's praises because all they care about is ratings. You know a lot more about Salem than I ever will, although I did go back to Washington a day at the White House, July 25, 2017. Mm -hmm. They wanted me to do an afternoon show, and I wanted to go to the White House and see what that was like. (laughs) And my goodness, the association between Salem and Washington, including Mitch McConnell, he came to a big party that they threw in the Senate, and the head of Salem was there, and Phil Boyce was there. What's the guy's name? Esslinger? What, what, what is motivating that association between McConnell, Trump, and Salem Media? It's such a funny story. And, and by the way, Craig, I was disinvited to that day at the White House. All of Salem's national hosts were invited to do their show on the White House lawn. Somebody in the White House called Salem and said, don't you dare put that damn Joe Walsh at the White House. So the White House didn't want me there. Look, Ed Atzinger, who's the founder and owner of Salem, he's best friends with Kevin McCarthy, 
who's the House Majority Leader. And right after Trump won, Ed Atzinger signed on to Team Trump. The funny thing, Craig, is Atzinger didn't even like Trump. Back in the primary, he was a Rubio guy. He was a Jeb Bush guy. Ed is a big Christian man. He didn't like Trump. Salem's supposed to be some big Christian company, but they are tied into the Republican establishment. So he's very close to McConnell. He's very close to Kevin McCarthy. In fact, I think McCarthy may even represent him where he lives in California. That's where Salem takes their marching orders from. What a small world. Maybe I was sitting where you were going to be seated, <laughs> but it was quite a day. And, you know, Prager and Hewitt oh, were yeah. there. I interacted with all those guys. Larry Elder, who was part of the birthing of Stephen Miller yeah. and David Horowitz, that whole yeah. crew. I'm going to be talking about that with Gene Guerrero, author of Hatemonger. Yeah. But Joe Walsh, you were in the belly of the beast. And I need to ask, because I'm not a Christian, never have been. I look at Salem and I thought, well, that will be a friendly place for a Jewish guy because Dennis Prager's there, Michael Medved. Medved is the key. They invoked the Medved rule. And when he would not back Trump, they got right. rid of him. But tell me as a Christian, what's going on there? I assume you are a Christian. And how can Salem go for this with their professed Christian background. Explain it to me because I'm not the right guy. Because Ed Atzinger, the founder of the company, he's Christian and he wants to sit at the table. He loves to be around the important people. And so this guy gets elected president, who I know deep down Atzinger doesn't like. Atzinger wants Salem to be a player. Atzinger loves to tout the fact that he knows McConnell and McCarthy. So it, it's all about influence. So he wants influence. He wants, you know, a seat at the table. He wants Salem to be a player. And so they sacrifice what they believe in. Look, all of us, Hewitt, Prager, Elder, Medved, Mike Gallagher, and me, we were the national hosts. And we were all given an ultimatum. We literally were, Craig. You need to be pro-Trump or else. Hewitt sold his soul. Dennis Prager sold his soul. I mean, he basically tries to ignore Trump. But Gallagher is a yes man. And Larry Elder, who is a libertarian, for heaven's sake, I mean, he sold his soul because these guys just don't want to lose their money, their ratings, and, you know, their influence. I know it. My podcast features a lot of people who had to step away, like you, even though yeah. you're conservative. You saw what's going on. Explain it for yourself. What was your breaking point? Well, my breaking point, and I've, I've, I've uh, apologized for this, Craig. I voted for Trump in 16, and I didn't pay attention to him. And that's a crazy thing to say. I was a nationally syndicated radio guy, former congressman, but I really didn't pay much attention to Trump. I, I, again, I just figured he's a goof. I should have paid more attention to him. And right after he got elected, I realized when I started to pay attention to him, he lies every time he opens his mouth. That's 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 it for me. I can't support anybody who lies like he does. The final straw for me, the final straw really was Helsinki in the summer of 18 when he stood in front of the world and said, I believe I, I'm, I'm with Putin and not my own intelligence people. I mean, that was just a supreme act of of disloyalty. From that moment on, I was a never Trumper on the radio. And I mean, I lost advertisers. I lost audience. Salem busted my chops every day. 
when I decided to run for president, I lost my radio show. I was going to lose it no matter what, Craig. I was going to lose my national and my Chicago show no matter what as we got close to this election. We were living parallel lives. Charlottesville was a big deal. That happened right after that visit to the White House. Yeah. And I went on Nine News and said, there aren't two sides of that. Heather Heyer is dead, killed by a white supremacist. What is he talking about? Very fine people on that side. And they can make it about the Lee statue, whatever. We've heard Prager's justification. My God, Dennis Prager, what a sellout to back him on Charlottesville. And then Helsinki, while you were in a studio near Chicago screaming about it, I was in Aurora, right outside of Denver, yeah. the KNUS studio, just saying, what the hell? How could anybody watch Helsinki and yeah. not come away saying what Dan Coates said this week? The Russians yeah. have this guy. Craig, this is what... And we all use that expression, but it's true. Dennis Prager, right, a revered Salem figure, he sold his soul to keep his job. It literally sold his soul. Now, what does that mean? That means he's taken everything he believes, he's put it in a closet, and he won't talk about it because he wants to keep his job and keep getting paid by Salem. Hugh Hewitt, another guy who literally sold his soul. He will do whatever Ed Atzinger tells him to do. He, 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 they will do whatever the company tells them to do. And you mentioned it a few minutes ago. Think of Christian preachers, uh, not just you know the knucklehead Jerry Falwell down at Liberty University, but all of them who've just put their beliefs away in a closet somewhere to sell their souls to this horrible, horrible man. Right, but who are we to talk? Because to an extent, <laughs> we had our breaking point. And these guys probably have a breaking point too. It's just different than ours. And isn't that what this election is about? And you and I are dedicated to defeating Donald Trump, but it comes down to persuading people who might be close to their breaking point. How do we do it, Joe Walsh? Well, I'll argue a little with your premise. I don't think these guys have a breaking point. I think there are people, and I've got many of my former colleagues in Congress and people in conservative media who literally don't have a breaking point. They will go down with them. But to your question, I think this election could still and will still be very close. You and I aren't going to decide this race. I'm in Illinois. You're in Colorado. I think Trump's not going to win either one of these states. We've got about five or six battleground states, places like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Florida, and North Carolina. We've got to move people in these states, people in the middle, disaffected Republicans who don't like Trump, but they're afraid Biden may be influenced by the crazy left. I've got a radio show again. I'm on the radio and I'm on in some of these battleground states trying to convince some of these Republicans to put country first. And people can find you on social media, I assume on Facebook, but especially on Twitter where you are super active. But let's talk about Facebook because we kind of lead parallel lives. When I was doing media, everyday radio and then weekend radio, I accepted everybody as my Facebook yeah. friend. And because I was on Salem, they were predominantly conservative. And I thought, well, maybe I can influence these people. And I still try to an extent. You have a much bigger following on social media. And you had an interesting tweet about your Facebook post. Tell everybody 
your tweet on September 11th that got such a reaction. So you're right, Craig. Look, I have about 1.1 million followers on Facebook. Almost all of them are Trump supporters. They all used to be my supporters before I turned on Trump, which, again, makes me sad because that's the world I come from. I I just a, a couple days ago, I posted the latest covid death total. 192,000 Americans are dead. That's all I did was just post the death total. And I mean to tell you, Craig, every damn reply I got on Facebook from these people, Trump supporters was, no, Joe, you're lying. That's a damn hoax. That's fake news. 192,000 people haven't died. More like eight or 9,000. Only 6% of the people who've died really died from COVID. They were hearkening back to that those CDC numbers that came out a couple of weeks ago that Trump and Hannity and all the rest jumped on like there's some conspiracy when there isn't. All of them died, all 192,000 of them died from COVID. Some of them had other conditions as well. But it made me sad because all of these Trump supporters believe the lie and the conspiracy that Only 6,000 people or so have really died. Let's stay on Facebook for a moment. Is it a Trump tool? Is Facebook part of the problem? Well, look, I'm a free market guy. I don't want the government doing anything. But yes, Facebook has become an absolute wasteland for, I mean, it's just all Trump supporters. It's generally all conservatives. When you look at the, the most popular people on Facebook who make posts on Facebook, It's people like Breitbart, Fox News, Ben Shapiro, Dan Bongino. So it is a cesspool for mega heads and conservatives. And Donald Trump does a lot of of advertising on Facebook. Joe Walsh, COVID, you have a family. I do. I feel helpless. How do I protect my family? I've never seen a president mishandle a national security issue quite like this. How big is this failure on the part of Donald Trump with respect to COVID? I've never seen anything like it. Craig, think about what he did last night. Donald Trump Donald Trump will kill people based on what he did last night. He held an indoor rally in the state of, excuse me, on Thursday night. He held an indoor rally in the state of Michigan. He squeezed a couple thousand people together in an airport hangar. Guaranteed, it's a super spreader event. Guaranteed numbers of those people will get sick and some will die because Trump doesn't give a damn. Think about this, Craig. We're in the middle of a once in a lifetime pandemic and this guy is campaigning like he doesn't care that people will get sick and die. And it's not just any people. This is his base. He's yeah. saying, look at these people willing to sacrifice for me. Those people who destroyed the South Lawn at the White House. I know some of those stalwart Republicans from Colorado. My God, the man is willing to kill you and you take it like Herman Cain. Talk about <laughs> Herman Cain. He was our brethren in media, broadcasting yeah. after a great career otherwise. What is the lesson of Herman Cain? Well, the lesson should be run, young man, run, get out of the cult. Look, Craig, after I got out of the Republican primary, when I realized I had no prayer after the Iowa caucus, I left the Republican Party back in February because the Republican Party is a cult. 
it quite literally is a cult, and I don't want to belong to a cult. Craig, one of the last days I was campaigning in Iowa, Donald Trump held a big rally in Iowa, and I worked the rope line, everybody heading into the Trump rally. I campaigned with for about an hour before they went in for the rally. I asked 40 people in line, 40 people in line at a Trump rally if Donald Trump has ever, ever, just once, told the American people a lie. All 40 people told me, no, Donald Trump has never lied. It's a cult, plain and simple, Craig. It is an absolute cult. And the shame is people like Herman Cain should know better, should be smarter, and rest in peace, sir. Right. And I've heard Tom Friedman's analysis that they hate the enemies of Trump. That's why they support Trump. And I can understand, I suppose, working man resentments to a point. But what's the excuse for a Dennis Prager or somebody like Herman Cain, somebody who's more educated than that and can surely see the logic? Just going back to COVID and Facebook for a second and your pushback. Listen to what he said to Bob Woodward, how serious it was. That was the most cogent discussion I've heard from Trump. Hey, Bob, this is bad. More than five times worse than the worst flu. It's airborne. We've got a big problem. And he also says, if I hadn't done this, if I hadn't done that, then many millions more would have been killed. I saved millions of lives. So what is it? Is it a dangerous disease or a big nothing like your Facebook followers say? So he lies. And you and I know that for months he's been lying to the American people about a virus that's killing the American people. Look, Craig, to take it back to the conservative media, you're either like a Hannity, a Prager, or a me. Sean Hannity basically gets on his knees every day and does whatever Donald Trump tells him to do and sings his praises. Then you have people in conservative media like Prager who are just as bad because they know Trump's bad. Uh, But they do their best to ignore Trump. Ben Shapiro does this. Tucker Carlson does this. They try to talk about everything but Trump. Right. And then you have people like you and I who were, and I know you were in the conservative media world. You had a talk show. We speak our truth and we opposed Trump. And people in our business who oppose Trump, well, we, we lose the most. Well, I don't know. We we keep our self-respect, and True. this is just my secondary gig. I, I've never left my day <laughs> job as a lawyer. I'd like yeah. to think I'm smarter than that, because media is fickle. Yes. It definitely is. But I admired your courage stepping up. What I found around 710 is nobody was willing to discuss it. I don't listen much anymore, but I guarantee they're not playing those Woodward sound bites. Instead, they're no. probably railing on Jared Polis as a Democrat governor of Colorado and his mistakes during COVID, which are minuscule compared to Donald Trump. The Woodward story is a big deal. Talk show hosts normally would go crazy on a Jerry Falwell Jr. type scandal, but they stay away. They won't talk about it. And that's when I left because I thought the Ukrainian shakedown was a slam dunk case. Even all the obstacles put before Adam Schiff, this president sold out the country, used our money to leverage a smear campaign against Joe Biden and his family. They messed with prosecutors. I thought it was unconscionable, but nobody wanted to talk about it in conservative media any more than they want to talk about Bob Woodward right now. 
Uh, ratings, baby. Ratings, ratings. This is why as well, though, Craig, I believe, and I say this not as a Democrat, I believe every Republican needs to lose in November, too, not just Trump. Look, Trump's a lawless authoritarian. I believe every Senate Republican who has allowed and enabled him to be a lawless authoritarian needs to lose as well. People like Cory Gardner, who I got elected with in 2010, he needs to lose. Susan Collins, all of them. Or, or you'll never, never fix what's wrong with the Republican Party. You do know Cory Gardner and you know Jared Polis, our governor. What was yes. your impression of Jared Polis? And from Illinois, how does it seem we're doing with COVID in Colorado? Seems like you're doing quite well. I like Polis a lot. I, I did some things with him across the aisle when he was in Congress. He's a smart kind of an independent thinker. Colorado, correct me if I'm wrong, Craig, was also one of the states that attacked this disease pretty aggressively and then opened up on the earlier side, but seemed to open up responsibly. It seems like Colorado has done well with it. Yeah, science. It's a beautiful thing if science. you believe in it. <laughs> I mean, this anti-science stuff, it's going to get us killed. And let me ask you, because I don't know that I've heard you opine about it. Climate change was always difficult for me because I studied political science, not the hard sciences. And to an extent, we have to rely on others. But I'm inclined to believe that climate change is a big problem that we need to address just because Donald Trump takes the opposite view. I mean, have you reexamined any of your premises when it comes to things that you are lockstep with as a conservative? Absolutely. And if you and I, Craig, were having this conversation five or six years ago and we brought up climate change, I would have kind of rolled my eyes and said, come on, Craig, the, the planet's 4.5 billion years old. We're fine. Look, I've studied this issue. I've gotten kind of woke on this issue. Yes, man has an impact, a negative impact on our climate. And we've got to figure out responsible ways to deal with it. It is real. This is a real issue. I mean, my God, our entire West Coast is on fire right now. Let's talk about that. The problem is, we again, we got a guy in the White House who says it's a hoax. And right now, Republicans don't have a seat at the table, right, to try to figure out what to do with climate change. And just politically, Craig, because the Republicans are viewed as an anti-science party, young people want nothing to do with the party. Right. And this word hoax, I'm deep yeah. into Brian Stelter's book, and yeah. he undresses Fox News. But I think Salem is a microcosm of Fox. Yes. And Trump was propped up by a three-legged stool, Trudge, Fox News, and talk radio. How do you think that stool is standing right now? Well, you know, Drudge has moved kind of anti-Trump. He's gotten very critical of Trump. Fox News will go down with the ship. And liars and manipulators like Rush Limbaugh and Mark Levin will go down with the ship as well. I believe Trump's going to lose. I believe he's going to lose by a lot. What's interesting to me, Craig, is then what happens to the conservative media world? Because right now you got to be pro-Trump to survive. I, I hope that after Trump loses, that we can have an alternative voice in conservative media because I don't think Trump's going away. So I think the Trumpism is still going to dominate the conservative media world. Joe Walsh, out of Chicago. Kenosha isn't far away from Chicago. I really don't know your area of the world, but talk to me about Kenosha. And I was so disturbed by this 17-year-old 
going from Illinois to Wisconsin, yeah. Kyle Rittenhouse. Talk yeah. to us about what's going on in your neck of the woods there. And that's right next door. I live about 40 minutes south of Kenosha. Look, I'm pro-cop. I'm pro-gun. I'm hugely pro-cop. But I'm sorry, you do not shoot a black man in the back seven times. That is outrageous. It's every bit as outrageous as putting your knee on a black man's neck for seven minutes and 46 seconds. I'm pro-cop, Craig, but even I will acknowledge that cops do not treat black lives the way they treat white lives. Vis-a-vis the 17-year-old kid from Illinois who drove up to Kenosha with a long arm, with a gun. My God, first of all, he's 17. That's way too young. He he broke laws because he can't possess a gun like that at that age. I'm pro-gun. If I had a business in Kenosha, I would use a gun to protect my business. But the thought of a 17 or 18-year-old kid or anybody traveling up to Kenosha to try to do what the police should be doing, that's crazy. That's just wrong. He never should have been there. The president of the United States disagrees with you. He <laughs> gave a defense to Kyle Rittenhouse. I thought among the many shameful acts of Donald Trump for him to weigh in saying, yeah, I'm on the side of Rittenhouse and he was going to be killed and it's a good thing he had a gun. I mean, how did you feel when you heard that? Again, just disgusted, never surprised because this is who Trump is. Craig, you're the lawyer. And look, the 17-year-old kid, he'll get his day in court. And I don't know the facts. Maybe ultimately it will be proven that he acted in self-defense. But he shouldn't have been there to begin with. Two people are dead. For the president to even weigh in, by the way, a lot of credit to Joe Biden. He was late to the dance, but he ultimately did condemn the violence on all sides you, Craig, rightly say that Trump refuses to condemn the violence on the pro-Trump side. Correct. Or the racism. Yes. Joe, you were a part of the Republican Party in that world much more than I am. The racism. Are you shocked that this apparent white supremacy is worse than I ever knew it was in America? What about you? No, I'm not shocked because, Craig, I come from that world. Let me explain. I come from the Tea Party. And I got elected in 2010. I was part of the Tea Party wave. There were always two strands to the Tea Party. The strand that I related to was the anti-debt, anti-deficit strand. That's why I ran for Congress, because we were bankrupting future generations. There was an uglier strand to the Tea Party as well, though, Craig. It was a populist, nationalist even kind of a white nationalist kind of a thing. Once it became clear that that those of us who went to D.C. couldn't do a damn thing about the debt, the Tea Party people out here in America got pretty disgusted. And Donald Trump came along and he appealed to that other strand. He appealed to the ugly populist white nationalist strand and that got him elected. It's It really disappoints me, Craig, because I come from the Tea Party. Right. And that white nationalist strand has strains in Colorado. Michelle Malkin has moved here. She's championing the cause of Kyle Rittenhouse. She's joined ranks with the Groypers. She's been a major media presence for a few decades. What has happened to Michelle Malkin? And again, five or six years ago, Craig, Michelle Malkin and Joe Walsh would have been standing on the same stage. Now, now it's like we're on opposite sides. She more closely identifies and I guess always has 
with this uglier populist alt-right white nationalist strand and she's become one of the leading voices of it look it's real and this is this is an element the democrats have their far crazies that they got to deal with but this alt-right white supremacy thing this is real look we're going to elect a couple we're going to send a couple new members of congress who are believers in that QAnon conspiracy. I mean, this is a real thing that the party has got to address. Right. The guy in charge is the chief of conspiracy theories. We can see it. And it really is frightening. What happens if Donald Trump wins? That's a great question, Craig. And I'm a little speechless because I don't want it to happen. and, And I haven't been asked that question. I think if he wins, I think our democracy teeters. I think our democracy is forever changed. I don't know that our democracy can ever come back. If he wins, then I think you will see an instant move to a third political party right away. I mean, right away, because a lot of Republicans and conservatives will bolt from him and it will get ugly. Things will get really, really ugly in this country. What if Trump loses? What happens with the Republican Party? I think the Republican Party, Craig, is screwed no matter what. I think the Republican Party is done no matter what. If Donald Trump loses, and even if he loses by a lot, he's not going away. He could end up in jail, but I doubt it. He's not going away. And he will still dominate the party. Trumpism will still dominate the party. Craig, there's a chance he'll run for president in 2024 if he loses. I mean it. I don't think he likes being president but he has to be the center of attention. So I don't think he's going anywhere. So I think the party's screwed. Tell everybody what you are doing to try to defeat Donald Trump. What efforts are you making and how can people help? I'm in the lion's den, Craig. (laughs) I'm back up on conservative talk radio. I have a, a nationally syndicated show. I'm on in the battleground states. I'm on all over trying to convert Republicans and conservatives to put country first. I'm on for two hours every day. People can go listen to me if they go to gabradionetwork.com. That's gab with a G, gabradionetwork.com. Look for the Joe Walsh show. They can also follow me on Twitter at Walsh Freedom. Uh, I finally, Craig, I've got a, a separate podcast called F Silence. They can go to fsilencepodcast.com. I'm just trying to spread the gospel to Republicans and conservatives however I can to put country first. And sometimes you do use curse words. And I think that's just indicative of how upset you are. It's upsetting to see America potentially go bye-bye. We're going to fight, you and I, and I'm down to do almost anything to spread the word. And on Facebook, this last week, just as we close out this great interview, I put to all my conservative followers, okay, I know you don't believe that he disparaged the military, the fallen, the wounded, and calling them suckers and losers. But what if he did? What if he did? How would you feel about it? And a lot of people couldn't go there because I think that might be part of his Waterloo When he said that, isn't that worse than anything Colin Kaepernick ever did to refer to people who have given their limbs or their life as suckers and losers? Isn't that a big hole to drive a truck through? You talked about, Craig, what's their bottom line. Maybe you're right. Maybe if, if, if you had Donald Trump on tape calling them losers and suckers, maybe that would be 
even a Dennis Prager's bottom line. I doubt it. But yeah, that would have made that would have made a real impact if if his words were on tape. I think that's what's so powerful about what he said to Bob right. Woodward. But but Craig, think about it, right? The most despicable thing Donald Trump has ever done is what he's doing right now, is what he's been doing for the last three months. He's purposely undermining the legitimacy of our elections. I mean, before our very eyes, he's doing that. Mm-hmm. No president would ever think to do something like that. But yet he is. It's unspeakable. Here in Colorado, we have universal mail balloting. Cory Gardner won that way. Our last secretary of state, a Republican, says it works perfectly. But here's my hope, my optimism. You know, Bob Woodward, in his last book, Fire and Fury, ended it by saying his conclusion was that Donald Trump was not fit to be president. Now, this president says, I can charm this guy. I'm going to converse (laughs) with him. Right there, he is too stupid to be president, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Craig, let's always be thankful because I do believe he's an authoritarian. He's a dictator. Thank God he's a stupid, incompetent one. Because imagine if he wasn't stupid and incompetent. Imagine all the much more damage he could be incurring on us. Doesn't General Kelly hold the key? He might not have tapes, but if he had said, yeah, we were at my son's burial grounds at Arlington. And the president said, why do they do this? Just confirm what Goldberg stated. That would be powerful. And it might move enough people in the swing states, Arizona, Wisconsin, Florida. Wouldn't that be a big deal? And doesn't General Kelly have an obligation to come forward now? Yes. And again, I know I know General Mattis also wrote something, but but I wish I wish these people, I wish these unnamed sources would come forward. They all know how unfit this guy is. To me, it's their obligation to come forward. Gosh, I wish they would. Joe, thank you very much. Really appreciate your time. Good luck. Let's stay in touch. You got it, Craig. I'm a big fan of yours, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Dan Levitt, Sandler Training. Hi, Dan. Craig sent me. Craig Silverman? That's him. Man, can I tell you a good story about Craig? I'd love it. Once Craig took his dog, Tuffy, to a singing competition. For what purpose? Well, the dog was going to be in a dog food commercial. And how did they do? Well, Tuffy did fine. That dog, he could sing. So did they get the job? No, they didn't. There was a problem. And what was that? Well, Tuffy only sang when Craig started singing. And when that happened, everybody around started laughing. You know, Craig's not a good singer. But Craig's a great talker. You know, he sure is. Now let's talk about how Sandler can help you. Great. My sales team really needs help. You've come to the right place. Sandler training can help you big time if you are a salesman or a sales manager. If you would like to learn more about Tuffy or me or how to make sales, Call my old friend, Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107, 303-829-2107. Tell him Craig and Tuffy sent you. This is the Craig Silverman Show, and I'm Craig. Our democracy is at stake. It's never been more important to let your voice be heard. Join the conversation and fight for our democracy. It is our duty and our constitutional right. Follow The Craig Silverman Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at C. Silverman Show. Be a part of the change. Now, back to The Craig Silverman Show. 
I am very excited to welcome Jean Guerrero. She's written a book that I read. It frightened me, but it informed me. It's called Hate Monger, Stephen Miller, Donald Trump, and the White Nationalist Agenda. Ms. Guerrero is a celebrated author, also a reporter for KBBS in San Diego. She's a Southern Californian, and that really ties into this whole story about Stephen Miller. Am I right? Welcome, Jean Guerrero. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Isn't this a SoCal story? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I was interested in Stephen Miller's story in, in part because, you know, I, I've been covering the human cost of his policies in Southern California at the busiest border crossing in the United States. And I, I noticed a disconnect between what was happening on the ground with asylum seekers and immigrants and the White House narrative. And the other thing is, you know, Stephen Miller grew up in Los Angeles and Santa Monica, California during the 90s, which is the same time that I grew up in Southern California, just a couple hours south of him. We're about the same age. And I knew from having grown up here that despite what people think about California as this very blue, very democratic state today that kind of leads the charge against Trumpism in many ways. Back then, it was a very different California. I remember growing up, there was intense anti-immigrant hostility. You had the Republican governor, Pete Wilson, blaming all of the state's fiscal and crime problems on immigrant families. There were advertisements running on television constantly, you know, showing images of families crossing the border with this ominous narrator's voice saying, they keep coming. Right. And there were, you know, statewide statewide bipartisan attacks on on social services for immigrant families. There were attacks on affirmative action. There were attacks on bilingual education. And Stephen Miller is truly a product of that environment and took a lot of the language that was being used mostly by conservatives back then and inserted it into the White House. You made it personal, though. You get into his family background and you talk about your own. Contrast the way he was brought up, his ethnicity, and the way you were brought up and your ethnicity and how it figures into this story. Yeah. So Stephen Miller is, you know, he is the descendant of Jewish refugees who came to this country fleeing nationalist agitators in Eastern Europe fleeing, you know, targeted violence against the Jewish people and and came here just before the the Holocaust took place and their lives were saved as a result of finding refuge here in the United States. And I'm the descendant of immigrants. My father's a Mexican immigrant. My mother is Puerto Rican. And, you know, having this background helped me to tell Stephen Miller's story and, and to empathize with you know, the the way that he was brought up, which was, you know, he was told constantly when he was growing up about his family history and about the importance of the value of people who come to this country with nothing but the clothes on their back and speaking no English. Right. I'm a Jewish American and my family got over much like Stephen Miller's fleeing pogroms. And most Jews in America are Democrat, but there's a significant percentage who are not. And you do a great job illustrating the conflict in his family. And it's fascinating to me. It's like American Oligarchs by Andrea Bernstein, another great book, which 
talks about the family rift in the Kushner family, which survived even more dire circumstances in Europe. I don't know, Jean, I bet you've gotten a lot of reaction from the Jewish world about your book. Yeah, I mean, you know, most Jewish Americans are appalled by the actions that Stephen Miller has taken in the White House, you know, demonizing entire groups of of minorities in the United States and and systematically targeting families fleeing persecution and violence, families who in most cases haven't broken any laws and and who are trying to find legal ways into this country and, and Stephen Miller's finding ways to turn them away and to close the door to them. You know, Stephen Miller's own aunt was telling me that she believes that he needs to be tried for crimes against humanity. And this is the attitude that a lot of people just don't understand how it's possible that a person who was brought up with these ideals and these values came to turn on them in such a decisive way. A lot of Jewish people are embarrassed about Stephen Miller and his association with this White House. And I apologize on behalf of Jews everywhere. But I can see how it happened to him, and it's happened to Jews before him, like Roy Cohn and Michael Cohen, and they get involved in this orbit, and they like money and power, and standing next to a guy like Donald Trump, or being on talk radio, and having a microphone where everybody wants to hear what you have to say. But, you know, you are part of a great ethnic group. Hispanic people don't speak with one mind. You can relate to how most Jewish people feel, right? Exactly, exactly. I mean, you know, people talk about how how is it how is it possible that someone from his background could adopt these white supremacist viewpoints that express violence towards Jewish people like him. But the thing is, you know, I I come from an immigrant family and I know that within the Latin American community, there exists a lot of internalized white supremacy as well. And there are, you know, a lot of people who internalize this racism. And I remember being one of them as a a kid. And this is part of what I brought to the table as far as writing about Stephen Miller from a sympathetic perspective, but at least the, the young Stephen Miller I remember internalizing the white supremacist rhetoric and, you know, there was this real sense of shame associated with being Mexican because of all of the, you know, negativity that was being broadcast across the state when I was growing up about Mexicans. You know, a lot of Mexican families would, like Mexican restaurants would advertise their food as as Hispanic or as Spanish, you know, and Mexican families would brag about their European ancestors. My dad used to wash my hair with chamomile shampoo because he thought it would keep it like a lighter color. So there was a lot of this internalized white supremacy within the Latin American community. And I can understand someone like a young Stephen Miller internalizing that as well. And and I can, you know, empathize with his desire to be perceived as American with all of the privileges that that is supposed to guarantee. The problem is Stephen Miller continues to sound the exact same way today that he did when he was 16 years old, using the same angry, self-loathing language and hitting the themes over and over again. And for me, it's, it's truly a case study in radicalization. It's what happens when someone, you know, initially discovers a sense of power in expressing these ideas and then invests so much in them that their identity becomes inseparable from these ideas. And it started on the radio, talk radio, Southern California, Larry Elder, who was formerly a colleague of mine. He's been in the business full time, but he's also an attorney. 
I'm a full-time attorney who did it on the side, still do. But Larry Elder is a big part of this story as he hosted Afternoon Drive Time. He gave Stephen Miller a taste of something that Stephen Miller loved, which was an audience and attention. Exactly. You're from Southern California. Tell us what that was like, Larry Elder hosting a high school kid. What was it, 69 times? Yeah, I interviewed Larry Elder for the book, and he told me that Stephen Miller was on his show a total of 69 times as a kid. And it started, you know, shortly after the 9-11 attacks when Stephen Miller called into his show to complain about his school's alleged lack of patriotism. And Larry Elder, this conservative talk show host, a black man who says that there is no racism against black people and that the problems of the black community are a result of self-determination, ideas that, you know, allow a lot of white listeners to sort of believe that they can hold these racist views and, and that they're not racist because of the fact that they're listening to a black man espouse them. But anyway, Larry gave him a platform and he was so he was just so impressed with how articulate Stephen Miller was as a young man that he decided to let him come onto his show basically whenever he wanted. And so Stephen Miller finds a real sense of, of empowerment at a time in his life when he was actually, you know, struggling. His father, who's a real estate investor, had lost a lot of money around this time in the real estate company as a result of a number of legal disputes and bankruptcies that he was involved in. And they'd had to move to a slightly less affluent part of town. So Stephen Miller was feeling, you know, displaced. He was feeling angry. And here comes Larry Elder and, and gives him a sense of power again and, and a sense of, of, of mission. And he just becomes more and more radicalized in these views. And this is also when, you know, David Horowitz, a Jewish man who lived in Los Angeles, a former Marxist turned right-wing radical, heard Stephen Miller on the radio and cultivated a, a relationship with, with the young Stephen Miller as well. And, and Horowitz introduced him to this fantasy that the United States faced certain destruction in the form of the Democratic Party partnering with Muslims and other people of color. And, you know, Stephen Miller, for some reason, was really taken with this idea and found a sense of mission in it. And David Horowitz, you know, went on to shape his career, got him his first job in Congress, was feeding explosive talking points to the Trump campaign through Stephen Miller. It's a a really, you know, from a very young age, Stephen Miller found mentorship in these extreme radical, right-wing radical mentors who set him up career-wise and and gave him a sense of power right when he felt disempowered. Wow. David Horowitz is somebody who I've talked to on the radio. I've had three people hang up on me during my broadcasting career. David Horowitz, Michelle Malkin, and Victor Davis Hanson. I'm proud of all of them. And sadly, Malkin now lives in Colorado. And I think David Horowitz does as well. David Horowitz was a force in the conservative movement. He would host something called Restoration Weekend, where a lot of media types, political types, and affluent people would gather. Stephen Miller became part of that, correct? Exactly. He really helped to radicalize the Republican Party. Stephen Miller is is sort of like his greatest accomplishment because Stephen Miller is the person who ended up in the White House and became the most powerful advisor for Donald Trump. But for a very long time, David Horowitz has been holding these, you know, restoration weekends and West Coast retreats where he unites conservative leaders to incubate conservative thought. And because he comes 
from the far left, he really encouraged the Republican Party and, and these conservative leaders for years to adopt the weapons of the civil rights movement against the civil rights movement. So using, you know, very strong language like racist and oppressor to to refer to people of color and to liberals, language that is, is normally, you know, that was previously used to describe, you know, white men in the conservative movement who express racist ideas. And so he would he inverted and deflected that language. He he taught the Republicans how to paint young white conservative men as victims of discrimination, victims of oppression, as if they're the ones in the minority. And he also taught through the strategy paper that I obtained for my book that David Horowitz wrote, he encouraged the Republican Party to remake itself around demonization of its political opponents and really focus on inciting fear instead of hope. So playing with people's base emotions to rally people around the conservative cause. And this is what you see Donald Trump became the embodiment of this idea that David Horowitz perpetuated through Stephen Miller. Were you able to speak with David Horowitz? I was, yeah. I interviewed him several times. He told me early on that he was being very open with me and sharing. He ended up sharing a bunch of private correspondence that he'd had with Stephen Miller with me. And, and he says that he was being open with me because I had previously written about my opposition to labeling people. I, I think that when you label people, you do violence to them and you do violence to your own concept of reality, which is always far more complex than a single label can capture. And he, he sort of quoted me back to myself and said that it made him believe that I was a reasonable person who would never ever dare to use a terrible term such as hate monger to refer to him or, or to Stephen Miller, which I thought was very strange because when you look at David Horowitz in his career and or even just his Twitter feed, all he does all day is reduce people to labels. You know, he calls Black Lives Matter organization a Nazi organization, a terrorist organization. He says all liberals are totalitarians. You know, he, he uses very strong language and labels, very offensive labels. You know, he, he says that Palestinians are terrorists and, and just language like that. So it, it felt like a weird sort of like, like, like this Jedi mind trick that he was <laughs> pulling on me, but he's not at all happy with the way that I ended up writing about him and Stephen Miller, and, and he told me so. How has he communicated that? He sent me a, a long email telling me that he thought my book was trash and that I had raped him and his reputation. And it, it was sort of performative the way that David Horowitz often is when he's writing about something that he's angry about. And I expected it. Um, because ultimately, I felt that it was important to use the title hate monger for my book because as journalists, it is very important in general that we be neutral, that we be objective, and that we not use words like racist to describe people because we don't know what is in people's hearts. And I cannot tell people what is in Stephen Miller's heart, but I can say that Stephen Miller is fluent in the language of hate. And he has been deliberately inciting hatred for his entire career. And he communicates with people who hate. And so hate monger is an accurate description of who Stephen Miller is. And it's extremely important to use words like that when you're talking about people in positions of power because of the fact that when you don't, then you create 
space for white supremacists to operate in our institutions with impunity. What a word, though. Hate monger. I've always liked the word monger because it's different. And I like that song, Sweet Molly Malone, who was a fishmonger. How did you come up with that word? And was it controversial with your publishers? Tell us your thinking. Yeah. So initially, we were going to call it fear monger. But as I was polishing up the manuscript, as I was finishing things up, that working title started to really bother me. And I, I couldn't figure out why at first. But then I realized that it was because it wasn't accurate. Fear is an emotion that is rooted in a sense of vulnerability. It makes you want to run. It makes you want to hide. It makes you want to flee from the source of that emotion. Hate of an emotion that is rooted in a sense of superiority and entitlement. And hate doesn't make you want to run. It makes you want to harm. And I realized that this is the emotion that Stephen Miller needs to incite in the American public in order to rally people around his performatively cruel policies, such as the systematic separation of children from their parents at the border, or the systematic turning away of the world's most vulnerable and most desperate people at the border, or the revocation of DACA, which is for people who are brought to the United States as children. He needs that emotion to get people to cheer on these policies and and to rally around Donald Trump. And this is why he has been hate-mongering by inserting really apocalyptic, demonizing language into Trump's speeches and inserting graphic descriptions of alleged migrant crimes into Trump's speeches. It's intended to get people to hate and to get excited about policies that hurt people who have committed no crime. Dictionary.com describes monger, defines it as a person who promotes a specified activity, situation, or feeling especially one that is undesirable or discreditable, like the emotion of hate. And some trial lawyers use this. It's the reptilian response, people reacting to fear or hate. And there are some people who ended up in positions of power at Breitbart, another SoCal situation, who realized that this last election was the Flight 93 election. Tell everybody what that means. We are so close to 9-11, taping it today on 9-11 for air tomorrow morning. So this institute, the Claremont Institute, that uh, a fellow at the Claremont Institute compared the 2016 elections to that flight, this flight where you know the passengers took control of the airplane and ended up crashing the airplane in an empty field so that it would not hit its intended target, which was believe it to have been the capital. And the Claremont Institute said in 2016 that the need to elect Trump was comparable to the need for those passengers to take over that flight. So even if it was going to prove deadly, which it did, it proved you know disastrous for every single person on board, they all died. He said that even if it proves disastrous, even if it proves deadly, it is better than the alternative, which for him was what he called the endless importation of third world people. So there's this idea that has been perpetuated that there's going to be some kind of third world apocalypse, that brown and black people are taking over the United States and that it's going to be 
detrimental to the existence of the United States, which is a white supremacist conspiracy theory. It's an extremely dangerous conspiracy theory that they are laundering through the language of heritage and the language of national security. It's the same exact conspiracy theory that motivates acts of white terrorism, like the massacre that we saw in El Paso, where 23 people were killed by a white terrorist who believed he was saving the United States from a quote-unquote Hispanic invasion. That conspiracy theory is what the Republican Party is now heavily leaning on for Trump's re-election campaign. And Trump, you know, he keeps talking about how all of his opponents are essentially agitators and anarchists who want to destroy the United States and that anti-racist protesters and racial justice protesters wanted to destroy the United States. That's not dog-whistling white supremacy. That is white supremacy. He is using the exact same language that Stephen Miller is so familiar with from having read white supremacist literature for so long and been inspired by it, as I show in my book. And he's doing it to incite white fear and white hatred so that he can get reelected again in November. I totally agree. And it's frightening as hell. It wasn't just El Paso being a horrific atrocity inspired by Stephen Miller and rhetoric out of the White House. But the Tree of Life Synagogue also was somebody inspired by that sort of thinking. And to think that a Jewish person would be involved with white supremacy But you do make the case and you do it at Duke, where he encountered people like Richard Spencer and Peter Brimlow. I'm interested in Brimlow and Be There because they have a lawsuit going on in Colorado. The Republican mayor of Colorado Springs said, no, we don't want Be There in our town. They've sued him. Tell everybody about Miller and his association with Spencer and Brimlow. Stephen Miller met Richard Spencer at Duke University, and they collaborated on bringing Peter Brimlow to Duke University to talk about his book, Alienation, which talks about the need to stop immigration into this country because of the racial character of the people who are coming. He's a white nationalist and promotes white nationalist ideas, including the white genocide theory that I was talking about earlier. It's a very dangerous conspiracy theory. And Richard Spencer tells me that he was friends with Stephen Miller. In fact, he was almost sort of like a mentor to Stephen. Stephen was a little bit younger than him and Stephen would go to him for ideas and they would exchange links and, you know, go for coffee and things like that. Stephen Miller now completely denies that they were friends and tries to, you know, act like they're completely different people. But They absolutely collaborated on bringing this white nationalist to Duke University. And to me, what I identified as sort of this turning point for Stephen Miller, he begins to really think about the immigration system for the first time. Previously, he'd been very obsessed with, you know, the threat of multiculturalism. Uh, He talked about, you know, he's very obsessed with Palestine and and, and targeting, you know, pro-Palestine activists on campus. But this is when he begins to really get obsessed with the immigration issue as a way to maintain a white majority in this country. But he understood from having been mentored by David Horowitz that he needed to launder these ideas in the language of heritage and the language of national security in order to make them palatable to the mainstream. And and this is how you see him, you know, really going forward in his career in Congress talking about immigration in these ways. And Brimlow and Bider are still allied with Stephen Miller. And that's disturbing. 
here's the thing about the white supremacy and the great job you did as a researcher and an author. You spoke to so many people. I felt like I was at Stephen Miller's wedding at Trump International and clearly had great sources. But for those who would doubt that a Jewish guy could be a white supremacist, you found the evidence. It's come out. Tell everybody about Katie McHugh and this correspondence that proves that Stephen Miller is a radical racist. Yeah, so Katie McHugh is the former editor at the right-wing blog Breitbart. And while she was there in her early 20s, she was told by editors at Breitbart that Stephen Miller, who at the time was working for Alabama Senator Jeff Sessions as his communications director, she was told that Stephen Miller would be shaping her coverage, that he would be providing her with story ideas and story tips, and that she should publish stories based on his ideas. And he starts pumping her and other editors at Breitbart with links to white nationalist and white supremacist websites, such as American Renaissance, a white supremacist website that basically pumps out misleading and false crime statistics about black and brown people to try to paint them as somehow more violent than white people and links to VDARE, the, the Peter Brimlow website. And then also, you know, encouraging them to write about the white supremacist book called The Camp of the Saints, which is about the destruction of the white world by brown refugees described as monsters and beasts and teeming ants toiling for the white man's comfort. So these emails, you know, at the time they radicalized Katie McHugh. I mean, she became convinced that brown and black people were you know, very violent and that she she needed to somehow save the United States from these violent people by putting out these racist ideas. And it wasn't until she realized that this movement that she'd become so involved in was violent that she began to pull away from it. And ultimately, she ended up sharing her hundreds of emails that she exchanged with Stephen Miller with the Southern Poverty Law Center, which which published these emails and, and which I, I reviewed and and it's it's very clear from these emails and from my conversations with Katie McHugh that Stephen Miller, whether or not he wants to call himself a white nationalist, he is very sympathetic to the white nationalist movement and is clearly inspired by white nationalist literature and is using that literature to shape, you know, the national narrative around immigrants and, and now not only immigrants, but also now Black Lives Matter protesters. This is all coming from white nationalist and white supremacist literature. And, and it's just incredible that, you know, there's there have been no consequences yet for Stephen Miller. I mean, there have been so many calls for his resignation, but because Donald Trump has grown to rely on Stephen Miller so much, he's not going to get rid of him. I mean, Stephen Miller is the reason that Trump won in 2016 by so skillfully inciting white fear in the American population. And Trump believes that he needs that for re-election in November. If he's going to keep him around, Stephen Miller is officially now the longest lasting advisor in the White House outside of the president's own family. And this speaks to this relationship that he has cultivated with Donald Trump, where where Trump really trusts him and, and sees him as a key player. How does it end? Will Stephen Miller ride the ship all the way down if it goes down? Or what if Trump wins? Can you see Stephen Miller in the cabinet? Yeah, if Trump wins again, then absolutely. I think we would see Stephen Miller be named chief of staff. I'm not sure exactly what position he would have, but he, he would absolutely have a critical position in the new White House. And they would 
continue to work to systematically harm communities of color in our country. One thing that they haven't done yet that I think that they would do in a second term is is target birthright citizenship. They've talked about it. It's, you know, it's, it's enshrined in our constitution, you know, the right to be a U.S. citizen if you are born in this country. This is something that these think tanks that, that were funded by eugenicists who believe in population control for non-white people, it's something that they want to get rid of. And Stephen Miller has been pulling policies from these eugenicist think tanks and I think that we would absolutely see an attack on that constitutional right in the second term. If, if Trump does not win, I think that Stephen Miller, because he is so invested in this ideology, I think he would become even more obsessed with finding ways to, it, it would become all the more urgent for him to, to get his ideology out there. And I think that he would become a regular commentator on you know, Fox or find his way into one of these think tanks. One of his first goals in life was to become a senator. And so I do think it's possible that we would even maybe see him run for office somewhere. The book is fascinating. I really recommend it. Jean Guerrero, thank you so much. Good luck with Hatemonger. Where do you suggest people learn more about you and your book, Hatemonger? They can find more information about it on my website, which is jeanguerrero.com. That's J-E-A-N-G-U-E-R-R-E-R-O.com. Thank you very much. Really appreciate your time and uh, thank you for your book. Thank you so much for having me on. My pleasure. When we talk about medical directives, what sort of qualities are we looking for there? Looking for somebody who cares about you, somebody who wants to take care of you, but also somebody who's not afraid of making that decision because, you know, bad things might happen. You know, if, if you have a a son or a daughter who, you know, absolutely, you know, is a stereotypical mama's boy and can't imagine anything bad ever happening to his mom, and then suddenly has to make a decision about what kind of surgery mom needs to have, or, you know, are we going to, what treatment option are we going to have for mom, and paralyzed by, oh no, I can't have anything bad happen to mom. Not the right person. So you want somebody who can look at a situation, still loves their, still loves the person, but is able to do do what's right and do what's necessary for your parents or for whoever you have that you're acting on behalf of. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblawllc.com. Hey there, I'm not going to take a lot of your time. I've been a lawyer almost 40 years. My brother was a lawyer, my father a Denver lawyer, my grandfather a Denver lawyer. If you have a legal problem, call me, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for you, I bet I know somebody who is. 303-861-2800. Thank you. Now back to the Greg Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Hey, this guy is a return visitor to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. His name is Cole West, and he's a brilliant attorney and a husband and a father. Not all that long ago, Cole was a rising Republican star. 
But then the Trump crowd took over. Did I get all that right, Cole West? <laughs> well, I would never characterize myself as a as a rising star. Let's just say I, I was in office and I'm no longer in office. How Weren't about that? you in leadership? I was in leadership. I served as the assistant minority leader in the House of Representatives uh, for 2017-2018. Back up. Tell us a little about yourself. Did I get that husband and father deal right? How many kids? Yeah, probably the most important titles I've ever had in my life, husband and father. I married my wife in 19. 19- 89. So we just celebrated our 31st wedding anniversary. We have three kids. My eldest daughter just got married this summer, which was a just a, a terrific day for our family. She works for South Metro Fire as their public information officer. My middle daughter just graduated from nursing school and she just began her career at UC Health at Anschutz as a nurse uh, last week. So she's a brand new nurse. And my youngest is a senior at Cherry Creek High School. So three amazing daughters and feel very blessed. That is fortunate. I bet you feel an instinct to try to protect your kids. I have a senior at Cherry Creek High School and our our kids know each other. And it's a terrible situation they're going through right now. How do we talk about it? And let's talk about our own problems because Being a father is the biggest thing for me, and I want to protect my family, and I'm struggling to do it. How do you protect your family right now? Well, you know, it's a weird time, and by nature, we need to interact. We need to communicate. We need to spend time together, and unfortunately, since March, most of us have been holed up at home. We're not able to interact with colleagues Our kids are not able to interact with their friends like they would like to. So I think mental health is front of mind for me and my family just to make sure that, you know, everyone is, is, is feeling okay about where they are in their personal circumstance. Yesterday, we had some discussion in the form of Dak Prescott, who was talking about depression and and those issues. And Skip Bayless made sort of a, a flip comment on ESPN. I'm not sure if you, if you saw that, but mental illness is a, is a real thing. And so, you know, I, I hope that we're going to come out of this okay. But unfortunately, I, I heard some comments today from Dr. Fauci that this may extend well into 2021. And when you talk about extended periods of time where people can't interact, can't see coworkers, can't really have their normal lives play out, I think it's a big challenge. Right, but the sooner we put on some damn masks and get some leadership from the top, the sooner we could get to the other side. So let me tell you where I'm taking my emotion. It's toward Donald Trump. And that's what attracts me to you because... I'm an independent. It's not that big a deal for me to turn on Trump. But you are a Republican. You are in leadership. I'm pissed at Donald Trump because my kids can't have a normal senior year at school. And I'm pissed that it's going to extend into 2021 when it doesn't have to, if Trump would model good behavior. Well, you know, yesterday I heard Trump talk about how he was like Churchill. And if you if you go back and look at what Winston Churchill did during World War II, and that was to speak straight to his people about the threat that they faced from the Nazis and what they would need to do as a country to be victorious. 
We needed that leadership from Donald Trump at the beginning of this pandemic. Right when he said it to Bob Woodward, which is why he has to make up unlike Churchill, stay calm, carry on. We can see through that, Mr. President. That was the best he sounded when he was telling the truth the first week of February to Woodward. He told the truth, Bob, this is bad. It's five times worse than the normal flu. I have friends who want to talk radio saying, oh, it's like the flu. Well, your guy was telling the truth to Bob Woodward, and he said 5% kill rate. Think how bad it is, Bob. It's airborne, Bob. There's a candid president, and he gets caught. And you would think a normal guy, that would be his Waterloo. But these Trumpsters, talk to me, Cole. You, they're your former colleagues. Well, Craig, you and I are, are both attorneys, and we both had decades to interact with clients. And I don't know about you, but what I find is people are most calm. And I'm going to use that word because it's the word that, that Donald Trump used. People are most calm when you are straight with them, when you provide them the information that they need to make decisions for their own safety, for their own protection. You're empowering them by being honest with them. You're doing the exact opposite when you withhold critical key information. You know, I have my own personal theories as to why he did that. And when he talked about not wanting to stoke panic, it was a very specific kind of panic that he was trying to avoid. He was trying to avoid economic panic. He was trying to avoid panic in the stock market because he was concerned about his own reelection. Leaders put the interests of others before their own self-interest. That's what Churchill did when he had to be straight with his own people about the risks of Nazi Germany. And it's the, it's the risk that presidents before Donald Trump, if you think back to the Cuban Missile Crisis, go back and watch video of John Kennedy speaking to the country about the threat that we faced with missiles in Cuba. That was not a sugar-coated speech. John F. Kennedy went to the country, told them the truth. We faced nuclear annihilation, and there was certainly fear. But the American people were provided with information that they could use to protect themselves and their families. You would think that would be a breaking point for people, suckers and losers. I put it on my Facebook. I know you Trumpsters don't believe this, but what if it is true? What if he is calling our fallen and our injured suckers and losers, would that affect you? And they really couldn't answer the question, but answer my question, Cole West. What was your breaking point for Donald Trump? I, I think Charlottesville was the breaking point for me. When we have someone who can't rise to the occasion, somebody that, that can't lead the country and speak to inspire us to be better. You know, in Charlottesville, I, I think was a, a turning point for a lot of folks because what it suggested is that this president was, was more interested in stirring the pot and dividing the country rather than trying to appeal to unity to bring the country together. Now, I think, you know, he's argued that his comments about very fine people on both sides were taken out of context, that he was talking about the folks that were protesting the, the statue, he didn't need to go there. What he needed to say was racism is wrong. 
we need to come together as a country to denounce those who would intend to divide us. He's had numerous opportunities to do that. And unfortunately, and this isn't just something that's new for him, I think it's something that he's done for, for most of his adult life, and that is he's, he's thrived on controversy, he's thrived on sound bites, and he's thrived on pushing people's buttons to raise his own profile. He's still developing his brand. His brand is the most important thing to him. He'll have a career after he leaves the White House. And I certainly, I wouldn't be surprised if he starts a media company or, or tries to find some way to capitalize on his brand. But make no mistake, the presidency, the decisions that he makes seem to be driven more by the Trump brand than what's in the best interest of the country. Cole West, who's a brilliant corporate lawyer, you know certain types. We meet all kinds of people practicing law. I'm reading Michael Cohen's book, Disloyal, and he makes that point. Trump said the brand is everything. That's how Cohen endeared himself to Donald Trump. I mean, that's a cautionary tale for lawyers. Charlottesville was a big breaking point for me as well. I think we both look back and have to castigate ourselves because Trump's history was available if we looked hard enough. Roy Cohn was a big tell. I should have known more about that guy, but more books have been written. Movies have been made. Do you kick yourself for not breaking pre-Charlottesville? I'm going to go back to 2016. I voted for Donald Trump. And there were a number of reasons why I ultimately got to that point. But I saw red flags with this man, but it was a leap of faith. And I think for a lot of us who supported him in 2016, we believed that if we elected this man to be the president, he would rise to the occasion. He would become the president. He would become the leader of the country. And I'm going to say on the positive side, this is a man with enormous skill. I think he's underestimated in terms of his skill but he has the ability to connect with people. I think he's a fairly good speaker. I wouldn't characterize him as an order, but he, he does a good job connecting with people. And it's unfortunate that he's squandered that. But, you know, back to, to 2016, I, I think, you know, as, as a conservative, I expected that he would appoint conservative judges and justices to the Supreme Court. He did that. Cole West, if Charlottesville was a big deal to you and me, wasn't it kind of an attractive thing to certain elements of the Colorado GOP? And isn't that something to be worried about? We didn't have enough people in the party saying, not just the Colorado Republican Party, but the Republican Party across the country who would rise up and say, racism is wrong. White supremacy is wrong. You can go back and look at statements that Ronald Reagan made to say, you know, we're, we're the party that welcomes everyone, but the bigots are not welcome. And we needed to say loud and clear after Charlottesville that bigotry is not welcome in the Republican Party. I was saying it. Others were saying it, but we were in the minority. And you remember William F. Buckley, who said anti-Semitism is not welcome here. Right. So, so where were those leaders in, what was Charlottesville, 2017? August of 2017. So where were those leaders who said, this is wrong? It's not difficult, nor is it politically risky to say that we will not tolerate bigotry, white supremacy, anti-Semitism, 
We won't tolerate those things in America. We fought those battles. It was what the Civil War was about. It was what the Civil Rights Movement were about. We're still talking about it up until you know present day in terms of, of racism that exists in our society. But unfortunately, we don't have a president who's willing to grab the mantle and stand up and lead on this issue and speak honestly to the American people about this issue. When did you serve in the legislature? During the 2016, 2017, and 2018 sessions. So you were there during Charlottesville? I was. I was. Who, who, who assumed power? Because from my point of view, especially being part of Salem Media 710, this guy Patrick Neville seemed to have his way to go on every show. And on other Denver Trump radio stations, this guy became the voice of talk radio. I think he's a protege in a way of Tom Tancredo. Talk radio loves the guy. Am I right? Did he take power over guys like you? Patrick and I served together. We were in leadership together. And I'm, I'm not going to say anything negative about Patrick, you know, not, not necessarily because we see eye to eye on every issue, but, uh, you know, we were in leadership together and I want to respect that. I will say that after Charlottesville, I was one of the few folks who spoke out publicly against what was happening in Charlottesville, denouncing what was happening, and frankly, joined with a lot of, of my Democratic colleagues to, 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 uh, to call it out. I have to go back and look at Twitter to see how many of my fellow Republican lawmakers were saying similar things. I think Senator Owen Hill made a comment on Twitter, but it was the kind of thing where all 100 members of the Colorado legislature should have publicly said what happened in Charlottesville is wrong. Did you try to organize that? I, I didn't. I didn't. It seemed to me like sort of a no-brainer, though, right? That that we, uh, that all 100 members of the legislature should rise up and say, we denounce racism. We have to come together as a country, and we reject any kind of bigotry being a part of the political process. And you know, we have a president who will say. And he, I think he made these comments after Charlottesville that he denounced white supremacists. But, and, you know, he goes on and sort of winks and nudges, at, you know, winks and he, nods. He had and, three different press conferences. He hit a poor drive, his first effort, then he took a mulligan and it was okay. And then he took a third drive that was really the worst at Trump Tower. I remember it all well. But you don't want to go on the record about Pat Neville, but you have gone on the record about Dudley Brown. And Dudley Brown is a guy I have low esteem for because, to me, he's led the right wing off the cliff. And he became ascendant to the detriment of people in Colorado because guys like you got defeated. Isn't Dudley Brown part of the reason that you're not in the legislature anymore? Uh, I think Dudley would, would like to think that he's the one that, that caused me to, to no longer be in office. I suppose he had some role in my defeat in 2018. But I think my defeat in 2018 had more to do with the fact that we had a massive blue wave throughout Colorado and particularly in uh, the, the 6th Congressional District in Arapahoe County. We lost every single county-wide seat. So it kind of makes me smile. Not then, because I think a lot of good Republicans got washed out of office, experienced people trying to serve the public. But 
I hope that blue wave is a blue tsunami because I'm ready to repudiate Donald Trump. And wasn't that why you lost in 2018? That was a repudiation of Trump and Republicans. This time it should be worse because he's worse. Well, I'm going to give you some numbers. In 2016, I won my race by 10 points. Hillary Clinton won my district by six points. I lost in 2018 by eight points. So there was an 18-point swing between 2016 and 2018. If you look at the voter registration numbers, you're not going to see a huge groundswell of num increased numbers for Democrats. But what you did see was a lot of folks leaving the Republican Party and becoming unaffiliated. Uh, I don't think that's a mystery. I think you'll, you have a lot of Republicans who have decided to become unaffiliated because they're unhappy with the trajectory of the party. Maybe they think the party's not conservative enough. But frankly, I think a lot of people are leaving the party because they don't believe that the standard bearer of the party represents their values. And frankly, the standard bearer of the party, Donald Trump, is not a conservative. If we talk about conservative values, tell me where Donald Trump's conservative values are. He's changed parties five times. I've seen videotape where he waxed poetically about how he was the most pro-choice person there was. We, we've seen him. Right, but let me play conservative. I, I don't care what he said. He appointed Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, and they are pro-life. But these arguments, are you still a Republican? I am, yeah. Okay. And are you going to vote for Donald Trump? I am not going to vote for Donald Trump. Who are you no. going to vote for? I am going to vote for Joe Biden. And, and, let, and let me explain to you nice. how, how I've made that decision. I'm not a Democrat. I have no desire to be a Democrat. But in, in my analysis, I look at the two risks here. On the one hand, you have the risk of four more years of Donald Trump and the risks that that creates for our country. More division, more racial tension, less fiscal discipline, because I think Donald Trump has been one of the least fiscally conservative presidents we've ever had, and I'm including Democrats in that group, a person who doesn't respect the Constitution, a person who doesn't respect separation of powers, a person who doesn't respect congressional authority and sharing power with Congress. So I, I have that risk on the on the other side, on one side. I'm, I'm loving it. Is this the first time you've announced it publicly? It is. On the other side, we have four years of a Democratic president. And there are a number of things that I disagree with Joe Biden on, but I will say over the course of his career, and it's a long one, I'm judging him as a, a person who's been a moderate, somebody who's been thoughtful, and most importantly to me, a person who is a decent, fine man, a person who's gone through tremendous, tremendous challenge in his personal life. He lost his wife and a daughter early in his career. Uh, he lost his son to cancer. And this is a man who's persevered, who's, who's seen that through. You know, I, I share my faith with him. I'm, I'm a Catholic. So I, I guess you could say- I, Let's I talk about that because I know your faith is important to you and it appears to be important to Joe and Jill Biden. Do you have that same perception of them as a faithful Catholic yourself? I'm never going to make a comment on somebody else's faith other than to say that Joe Biden seems very genuine in his his Catholic faith. And I can speak from personal experience. My family's uh, experienced loss. I lost a brother when I was in 
the fourth grade. And what got our family through was our faith. And I've heard Joe Biden talk about how his faith got him through. When you lose a wife and a daughter and then later a son, those are tremendously painful things. So I, I take that at face value that, that he's that he's truly a person of faith. That, you know, and getting back to, you know, the balancing here, there there are things that the Democrats could do over the next four years that I might vehemently disagree with. Well, in two years, we'll have an opportunity to elect a new Congress, elect one third of the Senate. And if we're not happy with what the Democrats are doing, or we're not not happy with what Joe Biden is doing, we can elect new people and we can pass new legislation. We can overturn laws that they pass. And I think that's something that we can fix. What I'm not sure we can fix is four more years of the kind of division and, and tension and frankly unrest that we've had over the last four years. And I fear what Donald Trump would be in a second term, given the fact that he'll never face the voters again. And there are all kinds of red flags there. I am super honored that you are doing this in my studio. And I can tell it's consequential for you to say these words. And it's not just, oh, I'm going against my party. But I think you feel what I do is the next four years could be terrible under Donald Trump. He has demonstrated some very dangerous tendencies. And we've got a normal guy in Joe Biden. The Dems did not nominate Bernie Sanders. So come on, people. Now, to me, it's an easy call, and I'm glad you made it. But what do you say to me? Because I will not vote for Cory Gardner. I know him. I've been friendly with him. I've shared studios with him, just like we're doing. But his enabling of Donald Trump is unforgivable. And to me, that whole Trumpist movement needs to be repudiated. Sorry, Corey. And again, you're lucky, John Hickenlooper, because I'm going to vote for you. So what about you? I'm going to vote for Cory Gardner. And let me tell you why. I think if you go back and look at Cory Gardner's comments during the 2016 election, he had a lot of reservations about Donald Trump. Yeah, he called him a buffoon. He was right. And I think you said he, he wasn't planning to vote for him. I don't know. He didn't vote for him. And I don't know if he, he voted for him or not. I think that that it's important for us to maintain some power in the Senate. And I think that, that Cory Gardner's done. Cory had the power to speak up at the impeachment. Yeah, Was that a valid case? You're a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. Cole West. We're in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Did Adam Schiff and Jason Crow, Hakeem Jeffries, and the House management put on a case? Yes, they did. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think it was a I think it was a compelling case. Yes, a betrayal of America and our constitution and cheating to win an election. Mitt Romney seemed to understand that. Well, why couldn't Cory Gardner? He went to CU Law School. I'm more willing to judge Cory on his lifetime of work rather than a couple of decisions he made. You know, I I think he has the ability to continue to do great things for Colorado, and I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, I'm not, I'm disappointed in terms of where he ultimately came out in terms of of Donald Trump, but I don't think it's a reason for me to not vote for him. I think Corey is a, a decent, good man who's done some good work, and I'd like to see what kind of senator he could be without Donald Trump in the White House. Do you second-guess any of the decisions you've made within the party? For example, the last Republican 
go around as he was going to oppose Jared Polis. There was Walker Stapleton, and then there was a guy named Victor Mitchell. Both had some experience in government. But Victor said, I'm not supporting Donald Trump. And he was ahead of your time. Do you think back, boy, that's the kind of Republican I should have been backing instead of these people who won't say anything against Donald Trump? That's a good question, Craig. You know, I'm one of the few Republicans who's publicly speaking out against Trump. But I'm I'm playing the long game here. And here's why. If we go back after 1974, when Richard Nixon resigned, and sometimes we forget that in 1972, Richard Nixon won 49 out of 50 states. 49 out of 50 states. I remember. I was a sophomore at right. George Washington High School. Right. To me, it's, it's more than politics now. Isn't Trump a real and present danger to your family? Well, let me finish my thought. Sure. And, that, and that is, you know, we, after 1974 and Richard Nixon left office, it was sort of a day of reckoning for the Republican Party. And a lot of people are like, oh, I wasn't a supporter of Richard Nixon, distancing themselves from Richard Nixon. I do expect Donald Trump will lose the election this year. And then we're going to go through that process in the Republican Party. And we're going to have an opportunity to decide, are we the Trump party or are we the Republican party? Are we going to be the Republican party of Eisenhower, Reagan, Bush, or are we going to be the party of Trump? If we're going to be the party of Trump, I think there is a, a likely split within the Republican party that those who are traditional conservative Republicans will form a new party. And I'll be a part of that movement. If the future of the Republican Party is to fall in line behind Donald Trump and Donald Trump Jr. and Ivanka Trump or whoever else is going to be a part of that movement, count me out. But if we're going to talk about restoring the Republican Party to what it was before Donald Trump descended the escalator, then I'll remain a part of the party. It's the reason I haven't left, because I do believe that you have to sort of see politics in a longer perspective than just a short term. So I think I'm going to hang in there for a little while longer and, and see how this plays out. That all sounds well and good. And being a Republican leader is part of your background. It's not mine. Looking from the outside, I worry that the GOP has shown itself through Nixon and now through Trump, and in another couple of generations, we'll have Roger Stone with a tattoo of Nixon and Trump on his back, helping Barron Trump be the GOP nominee. Why should I not worry about it? Because what I'm getting at is, aren't there some underlying problems, like Republicans don't believe in science, like Republicans are okay with racism? Aren't those some problems that will hopefully cause our kids' generation to say, see you, you're like the Whig Party now, you're dinosaur material, goodbye? I think the beliefs you just described are not Republican beliefs, they're Trump Party beliefs. You know, Donald Trump and his followers have hijacked the Republican Party. Now, once Donald Trump is out, We'll see if there's a, a lasting influence. But I, I go back to 2016, and a lot of my friends 
who were delegates to the Republican National Convention. And for the record, I endorsed Ted Cruz, and I was on uh, Ted Cruz's Colorado Steering Committee, along with Ken Bach and, and other Republicans. These were folks who went to the Republican National Convention in 2016. When Donald Trump was nominated, they walked out. And I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, I do. That most of the Colorado yeah. delegation walked out. Now, all of that group are the biggest Trump supporters, and they hold others to the metric of loyalty to Trump being equivalent to how good of a Republican you are. And yet these are the same people who walked out of the convention when, when Trump was nominated. So, right, but the next morning, Ken Bach went to a breakfast, said we've got to support him now. And he has been subservient to Trump like nobody. Ken Buck, another guy who went to law school, who should be smarter than that. What's happened to Ken Buck? To me, he's different than he used to be. Am I wrong or right? I'm going to say this. It's Ken Buck's job. Not only is he a member of Congress, he's the chair of the Republican Party. So he has to advocate for all candidates in the Republican Party. That's his job. Donald Trump is the standard bearer of the party. I don't begrudge him for that. But all elected Republicans have choices to make in terms of the future of the party. And when Donald Trump is no longer the standard bearer, I hope that we'll start to get some real discussion. I go back and watch videotape of Lindsey Graham and Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz in 2016 talking about how dishonest Donald Trump was. Ted Cruz said he's amoral. Nikki Haley, who said very negative things about Donald Trump. So it blows me away when these people can't say one negative thing about this man, even at his worst. So what happened to those folks? Did they decide that winning elections is more important than doing the right thing? And unfortunately, I think that for a lot of folks in politics, they, they make the decision that staying in office Winning re-election is more important than, than being true and to their, true their that, values. Doesn't that make you question your prior association with these people and maybe some of the causes that they've taken on, like climate change? I'm not an expert on that subject, and it's kind of come down to a partisan side. It's too expensive. It's this and it's that. Just watching the way Donald Trump acts towards climate change and what I'm seeing in the West now, it makes me think, and COVID too, I, I trust science and I don't trust Donald Trump. Am I onto something there? I believe in science. Climate change, crisis. It doesn't have to be an all or nothing proposition. What we need to have is for there to be room for dialogue rather than than calling folks names and, and pitting one group against another. So whether it's covid whether it's climate change or whatever issue where there's a scientific component, good leaders bring folks to the table, including scientists, including activists, including environmentalists, including whoever may be involved in the issue. Vaccines is another issue. So you got people who are at opposite ends of the spectrum on these various issues. What good leaders do is bring those viewpoints together to try to advance the ball. Not everyone's going to get what they want. And we've lost our ability to work for compromise in this country. We've lost our ability to have dialogue with people that disagree with us. And when we've lost that, 
we're in trouble. And to me, that's what Donald Trump represents. And ultimately where I decided I can't support him for another four years. And that is dividing people is more important to him than bringing people together to try to work for the common good. Yeah, he does it as a strategy. It's his default. James Mattis said the only people he's seen with that kind of proclivity are the Nazis with the divide and conquer strategy. He wrote that in the Atlantic right above the next paragraph in which he said Donald J. Trump deliberately divides us and he's unfit to be president. My God, how much more do you need than Jeffrey Goldberg's piece in the Atlantic to call the fallen and the deceased, the wounded, to call them suckers and losers? Why isn't that a breaking point for your fellow Republicans? Well, let's, well, let's talk about that for a second. I, you know, I wasn't in the room, and people have said, "Yeah, no, he didn't say it." But, but let, let's let's remember what he did say about a fine American and someone who. I think you and I would both agree is a genuine American hero, and that's John McCain. Donald Trump called John McCain a loser on several occasions in front of the cameras, said he wasn't a hero. So I'll leave that to everyone else to decide what's more consistent in terms of of his behavior. And I, I think you can reach your own conclusion. Here are the words that he used that made me think. This guy's a mob boss. And Michael Cohen, his book, Disloyal, he makes that claim. When Mitt Romney came out against him or does anything, he calls him a human scum. And he spelled it out in a tweet. If you are a Republican and you oppose me, you are a human scum. Who talks like that in the first place? Not many people. But that's aimed at you, Cole West, because I'm not a Republican. You are and the president called you human scum. What's your reaction? That's what the head of the Trump party says I am. I think there are other Republicans that disagree with this president. So I don't really get too hung up on people but calling me names. I'd say, isn't that more frightening than just normal politics? Because well, of course it is. He, he, if he had the power, and my God, his second term, he will. What do you do with scum? You, you wipe it out. You, nobody wants scum around. Well, it's it's sophomoric, it's juvenile, but it, it's completely within this man's tradition. You and I have talked before about the book Plaintiff in Chief, and I thought it was a fascinating book. I told you to read it. You did, and I did read it, and it was uh, an incredible book. And my biggest takeaway, and for your listeners, Plaintiff in Chief is a, essentially a book about Donald Trump's history as a litigant. And I think he's been a, a party to 15 hundred lawsuits, many, many lawsuits. And over the course of, of his time as a litigant, he learned certain things from Roy Cohn, and that was branding your opponents, calling them names, filing claims against them, and just bare knuckles strategies. Now, you and I have both practiced law for a long time, and we've dealt with lawyers who litigate in that, in that way, may be effective, may not be effective, not my personal style. But it's where Donald Trump learned how he was going to function in the world. That's the exact same person that's in the White House. And when I said I hoped when I voted for him in 2016 that he would rise to the occasion, that he would become a new person, there was no possibility of that because this is who he's always been. 
I think a guy named Barack Obama said that before you. He just can't rise to the occasion. He's a damaged human being. I've read all these books. I can give you more. And I will. The only thing that the Republicans have going for them is that Democrats haven't done a great job protecting downtown Denver, where I work. It's upsetting to me. The pandemic was already a a left hook to the jaw. And now to get a right cross to the kisser with violence and windows being boarded up. What about downtown Denver? How do you think Colorado has handled it? And the building you worked at, the Capitol, really sad what happened there. I think the governor and the mayor were far too slow in calling out looting and rioting for what it was. You and I both know what a peaceful protest is and what it looks like. And defacing the Capitol and committing vandalism and smashing windows is not peacefully protesting. I support law enforcement. However, I think the legislature did a pretty good job in terms of the reform bill that they passed this year. And I certainly give a shout out to some of my former colleagues on the Republican side in the Senate who did a really masterful job in amending that bill. I I think we still have some more. Which ones in particular? Yeah, I think relating to the immunity piece and and how we were going to- Which which of your colleagues are you giving hat tips to? uh, You know, I I specifically uh, would say that that Bob Gardner, Republican senator from Colorado Springs, was an instrumental part of, of, of making that bill better. Look, law enforcement has a difficult job. You were a prosecutor. You worked with law enforcement for a long time. But there are bad people in every profession. There are bad lawyers, there are bad cops, there are bad doctors, there are bad teachers. And the important part of the process is how good are we in terms of filtering the ranks and making sure that bad professionals don't harm other people. And unfortunately, law enforcement has not done a good job in policing itself. The law, the the police officer involved in the matter in Minnesota that guy should have never been on the force. I mean, I've, you've gone Derek back and Chauvin, look, right. if you've gone back and looked at his history, there were numerous opportunities to, right. to get this officer off the streets. But forget about that officer. I'm more concerned about a president who responds to Kyle Rittenhouse, 17-year-old, bringing an assault weapon. That's the way it's defined in Denver to the streets of Kenosha and killing people. That's Donald Trump encouraging that sort of crap. And during trials, he feels free to intervene, put in his two cents. He's a corrupter of the rule of law. He pardons people because they are his friends. He's just out front about it. And as lawyers, don't we have a special obligation to stand up and say, no, we're not going to put up with this? I'm going to draw a connection between Charlottesville and what happened in Kenosha. Because when you don't speak out forcefully against violence, when you don't speak out forcefully against vigilante justice, then you pay the consequences for that. And so today's discussion where we've been talking about sowing division and creating dissension and creating chaos, I think Jeb Bush called Donald Trump the chaos candidate. Mm -hmm. It's exactly what he creates. Kenosha was more chaos. And we see chaos playing out across the country. It would be an incredible thing 
if we had a president who would rise to the occasion and lead the country. I mean, Donald Trump had two incredible opportunities in 2020. Think about it. He had COVID and he had the George Floyd incident. And, and these were opportunities for this man to become the father of the country, for him to become a Churchill, for him to speak straight to the Every American people. Every crisis is an opportunity. And he squandered those opportunities, not because he made mistakes, but because I think he approached these incidents with the intent of creating chaos because that serves him, because it stokes his base. No, it's not just political, Cole. It's deeper than that. And here's a realization about why Donald Trump hates Barack Obama. What is it? It's not his policy. It's the primary reason, and this is hard for us to accept because I hope we are better people. He dislikes the man's skin color. He doesn't like black people because they are black. And that's a terrible thing to have in a president of the United States. Do you agree with that? That he dislikes people? He's, he's racist against black people? I think he dislikes people. Let's just put it that way. No, I used to say that too. I used to say he's an equal opportunity discriminator, but it's not true. I've read too many books. I'm in this Michael Cohen book. He, and he learned it from his father. We don't rent to black people. They're not reliable. There is a strain of white supremacy and white nationalism, and it runs through the Republican Party in a way. And I don't know if you can face up to it or dispute it. Your choice. I, I guess I, I do dispute it. Um, and, and let me tell you why. I really look to the, the origins of the Republican Party, and Abraham Lincoln was the, the origin of the Republican Party, the man that, that ended slavery, united our country, brought us back from the Civil War. 180 degrees from Donald Trump. Sure. But there are a lot of Republicans over the course of our history who have led on important issues. And even if you want to talk about civil rights. I'm not condemning the historic Republican Party. Right. I'm talking about the Republican Party that has caved into Donald Trump. Aren't there too many white supremacists in that group? In the Trump Party, yes. Yes, which is the Republican Party. And, and maybe that's where we disagree. I haven't accepted your premise that the Trump Party and the Republican Party are one and the same. I'll come back and revisit that with you after the 2020 election. Maybe we sit down in 2021 and see what that looks like. If Donald Trump is reelected, I think the future of the Republican Party becomes intertwined with Trump. Here I am getting in your face when you've made a big decision as a stalwart Republican to vote for Joe Biden. I salute you for that. And Republicans have some good ideas. Do you think there is systemic racism in our system? Absolutely. Sure. How many Republicans do you think would say that? What percentage? Donald Trump won't say it. I have no idea. I have no idea. And maybe it's just the way you present this. And I, I, I've talked to, to my kids about this over the last few months as things have been playing out across the country. And maybe it's that you don't ask the question, do you think there are system, there's systemic racism in America? Because I think most people would think, I'm not a racist. I'm not a bigot. I'm not a person that would judge other people based on characteristics. But we have to accept the fact that based on our own personal experience, we all have biases. We all have biases. And maybe the way to present it is 
Do you think there are in, inherent biases in America that prevent us from uniting as a country? And I think the answer to that is yes. The, your inherent biases come from your own personal experience, where you grew up. I grew up in a town of 1,500 people. Maybe somebody's experience is different if they grew up in New York City or Baltimore or Philadelphia. So as a result of that, there's a certain way that you view the world. And you and, you and I probably can identify with this issue because you and I have both picked juries. And we know that every person that you put into that jury box, despite the fact that they're going to raise their hand and say, I'm going to be fair and I'm going to be impartial, they're coming into that jury box with a lifetime of experience and they have formed certain opinions about the world and others based on that experience. That's, that's the foundation of what produces systemic racism in America. And if we start talking about it in that way, we're not calling people names, saying they're racist, they're bad. Your experience is right. different. Here's how you can understand how to to better to be a better maybe, person. Maybe that, but just between you and me, because we're the ones talking. I tend to agree with what I saw in a sign downtown early on in these George Floyd protests. It's not enough to not be a racist. You have to oppose racism. Right. And that's part of the reason I oppose Donald Trump. I see the racism. Is it part of the reason you oppose him too? Yes. Okay. So I I think that people like Cory Gardner fall short in not condemning the racism. Maybe once or twice he spoke up back when he had his spine. But let's move on from him. And I want to take a break, but not before you reminded me of our kids. Because I saw you get a little animated when I brought up Kyle Rittenhouse. We both have 17-year-olds, and the thought of a 17-year-old picking up a gun, I participated in a special session after our Summer of Violence 93 that created a law to prohibit minors from having weapons. And here's a 17-year-old, and it's terrible, but you had the President of the United States, in effect, give it his blessing. How does that strike you, Cole West? You know, Kyle Rittenhouse's mom, my understanding, and I, correct me if I have the facts wrong here, Craig, but it, I think Kyle Rittenhouse's mom drove him across state lines to, to Kenosha. And uh, let's start from, from a, a basic foundational thing. And that is, if you say you're for law and order, that does not include support for vigilante justice. And sending non-police officers into the streets to enforce the law is counter to what law and order means. We have a process in this country, and that is the folks who are sworn to uphold the law are those that are police officers or those who are elected sheriffs. And if we're going to open the door to everyone going out, not just defending their own property, but I saw interviews with Kyle Rittenhouse where he said he was defending a store. Mm -hmm. He didn't live there, right. it wasn't his store, it wasn't his family store. Why was he there? Because he has been listening to talk radio and online social media. And he says, my country needs me. My president needs me. I've got the perfect weapon, the kind the president likes, won't fight to prohibit. I'm going to take it to Kenosha and be on the side of law and order. And it appears he was welcomed by law enforcement. 
And a lot of Republicans are coming to his side, like Patrick Neville and Michelle Malkin, to name a Colorado pair. Does that bother you? It's not about the gun, okay? It's about the conduct. It's about- A 17-year-old having an AR-15? Let's move past that. It's about our president, and it's about our leaders normalizing vigilantism, okay? Right. that That's why Kyle Rittenhouse- took a weapon to Wisconsin. It could have been any weapon. Could have been and a could his, have been a machete, right, could have been a knife. Uh, and and his know. mother participated in it. That's my understanding, right? Okay, and if she did, isn't it starting to sound like a cult like Iran and Iraq and little kid warriors going out in the minefields? What are we doing? Well, that was her opportunity to be a parent. Just a a gross failure on her part to participate in that. I'm not sure if she's being prosecuted. I would hope that she is being prosecuted. If I were the DA there, I'd certainly be looking at her criminal conduct. She had the ability to to create a safer environment. But you know that that's the broader issue here. And I, I'm I worried that we we get bogged down on it's easy to say prosecute. Should she go to jail for what she did? I'll leave that to a jury to decide. But if I were a prosecutor, I would certainly impanel a grand jury and I would would would, would try to uh, to get her charged. All right, let's take a break. Let's get our wits about us. Let's get a word or two from my sponsors. Follow the Craig Silverman Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at C Silverman Show. And subscribe to the Craig Silverman Show podcast on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher. Don't quit on democracy. Be a part of this historic moment. Connect with us on social media at C Silverman Show. In my practice of law, Michael Bailey, decisions are often left to a personal representative. God forbid a person gets killed. That's an important decision you can make ahead of time. Who is going to be your personal representative? What is your advice in that regard? So you want to pick somebody as a personal representative who has several qualities. Number one, you want them to kind of have a good sense of financial stuff and and matters like that so they can, they can deal with that. I have a friend who's really, really good and really, really smart and is scared to death to fill out a tax form because they don't quite, just the finances don't make sense to them. So you don't want to pick that type of person. You want to pick somebody who can understand finances. You want to pick somebody who's trustworthy, who will carry out your decisions. And if you can do it, you want to pick somebody who's not afraid of people not liking them or getting their feelings hurt. Now back to the Craig Silverman Show. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. And we are back, Cole West. I've noticed you haven't been on Twitter as much as you used to be. Your tweets are always great and usually kind of aimed at Donald Trump and his latest atrocity, but you have slowed down. Tell us about social media and you. Uh, you know, practicing law cuts into my social media time. So I've uh, been very busy, but, but busy with my sec, law practice lately. Are you worried about offending clients? No. What about partners? Uh, no, I'm not. You know, I certainly wouldn't ever say anything in social media about a client. 
and I'm respectful of that. Nor would I say anything in social media about any legal issue that I'm working on because I have a duty to zealously represent clients and I, I take that very, very seriously. But, you know, in the political space, I don't feel restricted in terms of what I say or or to whom I say it. Do you ever worry about losing clients because you get a little outspoken against Trump? It hasn't impacted me at all. What about friends and families? Have any of them become different because of that? No. No, uh, you know, I suppose there are, are folks out there who liked me when I was in office and, and don't like me so much now that, that I'm not on the Trump train. Don't you think it's disqualifying of Donald Trump the way he's handled COVID? Well, what happened this week in terms of, of the Woodward yes. tapes, I think it's devastating. If You have to be honest with the American people. Now, there are times when you can't tell them everything. Maybe there are there are national security issues that prevent you from going on TV and, and telling the American people everything. But let's use as a benchmark, and I mentioned this earlier, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis. If there was a time for the president to sugarcoat it, that was probably it. And we came very close to having a, a nuclear right. war. And the American people were told exactly that. And if you go back and watch President Kennedy's speech, it was fact-based? When I trained younger deputies, I would say, concede that which has to be conceded. If you have a weak point in your case, you talk about it rather than the other one. And if it's going to come out at some point, don't fight it. COVID was not going to go away if you ignored it and you can't wish it away. So why not tell the American people? Why not be heroic? We're facing a challenge. We're going to rally together. I'm going to show the way, but the guy doesn't have that ability. He's not that smart. He's an authoritarian. He's a bigot. He's all the things that Michael Cohen describes. He's a mobster. That, that, that's what I really don't like, and I, I have to get back to it right? because I was a prosecutor for 16 years. This guy operates outside the law. He's law unto himself. He's full of intimidation. I don't like intimidators like that, but he's intimidated the whole Republican Party to go his way. And why? Why? And I think he's compromised by Putin, too. Do you agree with that? You know, I, I, I'm not privy to any kind of intelligence. You know, but Dan it, it, Coates was. He was the head of intelligence, and he's a Republican. I'm sure you respect him. He just came out and said, hello, fellow Republicans. This guy's compromised by Putin. Let me just say this. I've never seen an American president speak so fondly of people like Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un. And, and why is that? So I And have to, Erdogan from Turkey. Correct. And all correct. these Middle East, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, Mohammed bin Zamed, who's coming, MBZ, who's coming up to the Oval Office to try to prop up Trump. I mean, I, I like peace in Israel. I like Arab-Israeli uh, peace deals, but I'm not going to sell out for this because Trump is a bad guy and I don't trust the word he says. He likes strongmen. You know, I think he has a fondness for dictators. I think he looks at the way they run their countries. And when he jokes about serving more than two terms, 
He says it's a joke. He doesn't joke. But he he sees how long these people hold on to power in these other countries, and he thinks that's his path. So it suggests to me, first of all, that he lacks a recognition for the constitutional limits on his authority. He lacks appreciation for what the law is. And we haven't talked at all today about executive orders, but I think that's indicative of where this man is in terms of his respect for separation of powers. He was very critical of Barack Obama in terms of how many executive orders that Obama issued during his two terms in office. If you count up the executive orders, Trump easily eclipses in his first term what Obama issued. Because he is the state. That's the way he looks at it. And you, when you pledge allegiance to America, he considers that a pledge to himself. And Republicans are going along with this. And if you look it up and it's coming from the right part of the political spectrum, it's called fascism when a guy becomes this state. You're nodding your head. Right, you know this right. historic lesson. Fascism doesn't come from the left. Some crappy things come from the left, communism. But we're looking at fascism. And I understand now what happened in Germany, don't you? Absolutely. The, our founding fathers were very smart because they understood that one person couldn't rise to this kind of power with separation of powers and without checks on authority. Now, if our congressional representatives were cognizant of that or recognizing the importance of checks and balances in their oversight authority, they would, they would see that their future in terms of lawmakers is threatened by the way Donald Trump views Congress. And frankly, if Donald Trump can't get Congress to pass what he wants, he'll issue an executive order. It blows me away how willingly Republicans go along with these executive orders when we were screaming off the mountaintops about how horrible it was when Barack Obama does it. But when Donald Trump does it, we're fine with it. That's, uh, that's not conservative. That's not respectful of the Constitution. Frankly, I don't know what it is. It's got to be the money. Maybe your fellow Republicans like the money they've made in the stock market. I've never seen a president constantly point to the stock market and say, that's my doing. I want it higher, higher, higher. I mean, I've benefited from that, but there are things far more important than money for me. What about you? Well, who doesn't like to make money? I'm all for that, but there's an ethical and moral way to do it, right? So let's talk about COVID again, because I think the so many of, of the decisions that Trump has made about COVID relate to the economic impacts, and they've been severe. People have lost jobs. Businesses have, have been lost. You know, I was in downtown Denver yesterday. It's completely decimated. But Donald Trump made decisions based on the economic interests of the country. And I'm not saying that that was wrong, but, it's, it, but it was one of many factors that he should have taken into consideration. The most important factor they should have taken into consideration was public safety and listening to scientists and doing the right thing. Fortunately, governors really have had a more, a more significant impact than, than the president in terms of, of the day-to-day -day COVID policies, but the president sets the tone. 
And when we see people, I think at a rally yesterday, I'm not sure where Trump was yesterday. Freeland, Michigan. But I, I saw some video where people were saying- 2,000 people back Co- together. COVID's not real. Correct. It's a hoax. That's what they said at Bandemir. You don't need to go to Michigan. The Republican leadership was all at right. Bandemir. right. The guy you don't want to talk bad about, Pat Neville, was there with his buddy, Michelle Malkin, who is the mama of anti-Semitic groups and goes around supporting V-Dare and the Groypers, and they have their other supporters and enablers, including Colorado Christian University, including Salem Media, including Denver Trump Radio. And they are all saying that this is a bunch of bullcrap. The morning show leader over there went to Sturgis. Did you see what happened in Sturgis? Did you read about the findings of a Denver research group? UC Denver came out and said, we should have paid every motorcyclist $26,000 to stay home because that's the public health cost from that super spreading event in Sturgis. Those are your people. I, I mean, they, they're not Democrats out there. They're not many unaffiliated at Bandamere. Really, it's your party call. But Craig, let's let's be fair about one other thing. And I, I, I certainly think that those events shouldn't be happening and we shouldn't be encouraging people to not take science seriously and to not take doctors seriously. But I, I don't think we would be having an honest conversation if we didn't also talk about the fact that after the George Floyd incident, we had a lot of people shoulder to shoulder protesting. Some were wearing masks, some weren't wearing masks. So I don't think it's fair for us to say that the Sturgis rally or the Bandemir Speedway rally or Trump rallies are spreading COVID and those well, protests well, let were let not. Me push so back. I didn't like the people crowding together in George Floyd protests, but they weren't trying to make a statement that COVID isn't real. Now, were they? These guys are deliberately gathering to make a statement that COVID is a hoax. That's what they're all saying, including on talk radio, including out of the White House. This is going to go away on November 3rd. You've heard that. Trump has been explicit. And Cory Gardner made the joke last week. Did you hear it in Steamboat? He said, my eight-year-old said, Daddy, I figured out when COVID is going to be over. And Corey professed amazement. Tell me, son. Well, Daddy, I think it's going to be over on November 3rd. And then he gets a laugh. And he says, I don't know if he's been listening to Mommy and Daddy too much. So there's Corey Gardner endorsing the theory that COVID is a hoax, just like their leader Trump wants him to endorse. That's why I'm not voting for Cory Gardner. Yeah, you know, I, I hadn't heard that, Craig. If, if that's true, he, he shouldn't have said that. Maybe it was a, a joke that he shouldn't have made. But I mean, I get back to the, the original point here, and that is COVID doesn't matter what your politics are. It doesn't matter why you're in large crowds shoulder to shoulder. Uh, it's going to spread. And we know that, that folks who are, are most at risk, we're creating more risk for them when those kinds of events happen. So I just think that there have been there have been risks across the board, both ends of the political spectrum in terms of people 
congregating shoulder yeah, to shoulder. I agree with that. And yes. so let's let's just have an honest What's discussion. What's good for the goose is good for the gander. So let's just you know, but but what what has to happen is that people have to listen to people like Dr. Fauci, and they have to listen to Dr. Burks, and, and they Dr. Have to li- Johnson in Jefferson County has been right. a guest of mine. And the reality is that Bandamere needs to work with the public health agency like the Broncos did. And they're getting all over Jared Polis, who's done some good things, bad things. We've talked about the Capitol and downtown should have been protected better. But overall, how do you think Polis is doing? Uh, you know, uh, I think he's done uh, overall a good job. But but some of these things are extending a little too far. So one of the things, and I haven't had a chance to, to have a, a face-to-face conversation with the governor, but what I think people are lacking is... What are the metrics? What kinds of numbers do we have to hit before we're able to return to some normalcy? And this gets back to the point of being straight with people. I heard Dr. Fauci say today that that COVID, the effects of COVID could extend well into the fall of 2021. That's discouraging to hear that, but at least that's a straight comment. That's something, that's someone being straight up and honest. I think he's done a good job. And I hear you saying that you think pretty much he has too. And you know the man. Do you think he's an honest broker when it comes to calling balls and strikes on COVID? That he cares about your family and mine and his own? I've seen nothing to indicate that he hasn't been forthcoming and honest and that he hasn't been transparent in terms of the way that he's done this. And I, I early on in, in COVID, it was an interesting contrast, and I was watching briefings by Governor Cuomo in New York, Governor Polis here in Colorado, even Republican governors in, in other states. And what I saw were governors who were calm, who were providing factual information, who were allowing experts to talk, and who weren't trying to layer politics and fear and panic into the middle of, of these press conferences. And... You know, th- th- this has been a tragic thing. We've had a lot of deaths uh, in in the country, and the, here's the the sad thing. And and we had a lot of folks who died in nursing homes and died in hospitals, who weren't able to have their families with them in their last moments. And unfortunately, that didn't happen in my family. But I do know folks that it did happen to them, and it it's heart wrenching. We need our leaders to be respectful. We need them to understand. The tremendous cost that we've sustained over the over you know the last several months, and to be respectful in terms of how we talk about that, and talking about it like it's a hoax, is is completely disrespectful. And that's what I admire about you. I don't know you all that well, Cole West, but you can learn a lot by following a guy on social media. What he says, what he won't say, and I think you are a man of faith, and that you feel things with your heart and your brain. And a sense of empathy is really important for you. And some of that flows from your religious background and your experience. And you admire that. And Joe Biden and the polar opposite, I've never seen a guy like Donald Trump who so totally lacks the human empathy gene. It's, it's pretty extraordinary. I, I've just never seen anything like it. And I've, I've been in... In, in a lot of circles over the years, over the course of my career in politics and law and in business. And I've seen, you know, powerful people, but I, I've also seen those folks 
show empathy for others and try to show understanding for points of view that are different than theirs. I don't think he's capable of changing. I don't think he will change. And America has to decide this November whether or not we can stand four more years of that or whether or not we need to change course, recognizing as a Republican that the Democrats may take the country in a direction from a policy perspective that I disagree with. But morally and ethically, the country will be moving in a direction that's different than the direction that Donald Trump is taking us. And that's ultimately the, the, why I've reached the decision that I've made, that ethics and morals and empathy and the truth matter more than the Republican Party winning an election. And at the end of the day, if people attack me for that or don't like me for that, honestly, Craig, I'm good with I'm, I'm good with that. I'll, I'll sleep just fine. You are a Republican and you are a proud Catholic. Joe Biden would only be our second Catholic president. Do you take pride if Joe Biden ascended to that position as a Catholic? And does it bother you, fellow Catholics, who run him down? I haven't been in circles where, where other Catholics have, have run down Joe Biden. And I don't just support him because of his faith, but it is something I have in common with him. It is something that I understand, and I certainly understand from my faith in terms of what Christ taught us and how we're supposed to treat others and how we're supposed to serve others. And I think Joe Biden has lived those principles over the course of his life. I don't agree with all of his policy positions, but I think the kind of person he is will, will tell us what kind of president he'll be. Well, there you did it. You mentioned the name Jesus Christ, and I'm the furthest thing from an expert on Jesus Christ, but I would think that Donald Trump would be the opposite of Jesus Christ in so many ways. Is that fair? Is that right? I just can't understand why Christians would like Donald Trump over Joe Biden. Well, if you're a Christian, you also believe that you're not supposed to, to judge others. So I don't sit in judgment easily and and say that, that Donald Trump is this or Donald Trump is that. All I can say that as a Christian, I look at his morals and his values and certainly don't think that they align with mine on the basis of how he treats other human beings and whether he treats other people with dignity and respect. That's at the core of, of Christianity in terms of, if you really look at, at what Christ taught in terms of uh, being of service to others, being of service to the least among us, that's, that's what Jesus you Christ taught. You know what taught. I learned from the Woodward tapes is that Donald Trump does have the capacity to treat somebody with dignity and respect. And it seemed to me that's the way he regarded Bob Woodward because he was successful. He's probably rich. They're about the same age. And he displayed the dignity and respect to speak with him in candor, Bob. This is bad. It's airborne. It's more than five times worse than the most strenuous flu. Why couldn't he treat me and my family with the same dignity and respect? And I can't imagine a faith that has any tolerance for that kind of deception of the people. So I, I look at it and I just wonder how people of faith can square those things. Well, I'll, I'll let 
everyone make those decisions for themselves and and for but it's again if i could go on not just the dishonesty but i'll leave it at this that the woodward tapes reveal he said i didn't want to panic the people right i didn't want to cause a panic which is a bunch of baloney all he does is try to scare people and you and i live in the suburbs of denver colorado and he is telling you me our spouses and our children, be afraid. They're coming for you in the suburbs. Isn't that a terrible thing to issue that kind of fear tactic warning? Isn't that awful? Of course it is. Of course it is. And and so what are you going to do to make sure he's not president? You've spoken out on this show. I think that's big. Are you going to do anything more? I don't have any plans to do any active campaigning for any candidates. It's a you know strange time in terms of our ability to go. Well, what out if of- Joe Biden asked you to be part of Republicans for Biden? Would you ride on a parade float for him if we have such things? I am uh, willing to go wherever and and tell folks that the things that I told you today, and that is that the future of our country is at stake, and there are more important things than victory of party. And hopefully I can do something to help lead that discussion. I certainly don't expect to, to you know, influence other folks, but if, if people want to listen to what I have to say, I'm willing to share my message. Where are you on Twitter? How can people find you? My Twitter handle is at Cole West. Pretty darn easy. What a great name, Cole West. You should have been a shortstop in the major <laughs> I was. I was a second baseman in high school, but I, I was actually named after an outlaw. Do you know who that was? Tell me. Cole Younger. Beautiful. Well, I don't think you're an outlaw. I think you're a good man. Can't thank you enough for spilling the beans in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. I'm going to publicize the heck out of it, but you know that. I want people to listen to what you have to say. Thanks again, Paul. Craig, my pleasure. Sandler Training is one of the leading sales training and leadership development companies in all the world. If you're interested in increasing your win rates and revenue margins, increasing the number of salespeople exceeding quota, addressing sales manager professional development, reducing your turnover of sales personnel, it's all waiting for you at Sandler Training. Call my pal Dan Levitt at 303-829-2107 and tell them Craig sent you. Hey, Danny, what happens if somebody calls and says, hey, Craig sent me? Well, Craig, for the first few minutes, we'll probably tell some jokes about you. What? Yeah. And then I'll dig into, you know, what what's going on in their world and whether or not I'm a fit for what, you know, might, might be able to help them or not. He's an easy guy to talk to. I've been talking to him for so many decades. Call my old friend, Dan Levitt, 303-829-2107. 303-829-2107. Tell him Craig sent you. Hey there, I'm not going to take a lot of your time. I've been a lawyer almost 40 years. My brother was a lawyer. My father, a Denver lawyer. My grandfather, a Denver lawyer. If you have a legal problem, call me, 303-861-2800, 303-861-2800. If I'm not the right lawyer for you, I bet I know somebody who is. 303-861-2800, thank you. Now back to the Greg Silverman Show. Gosh, that was a great show. I hope you liked my guests. Thanks to Joe Walsh, Gene Guerrero, 
and Cole West. Now there's one more element to my show. Dave Gunders, the troubadour, with a song that is so special to me because of the backstory you are about to hear it and the sweetheart of David Gunders, my good friend, who might someday write a song about me. But you know what? I voted for Donald Trump. I don't like to admit it, but I just did, and I did it publicly, so it's pretty hard to deny, although it probably wouldn't stop Donald Trump. He said he opposed the Iraq war. Of course, he was in favor of it. The morning host at 710 KUS rails against the Iraq war, but when it happened, he was for it. We remember these things. The thing is that people make mistakes, and my support of Donald Trump was a bad one, and I lost some friendships for a while over that, but thankfully, they didn't give up on me. I had some thoughts going through my head that I needed to get rid of or educate myself, but I'm no better than anybody else, and I hope somehow with this podcast that I can influence some people who may have voted for Donald Trump, as I did, as Cole West did, as Joe Walsh did, and now want to repent. Next week, next Saturday, will be a special Rosh Hashanah show. I have great guests lined up, and we will be reflective that day. Listen now to my troubadour, Dave Gunders, with a terrific song called Give It Up. Welcome back. Our troubadour, Dave Gunders, gives us a beautiful song called Give It Up. What is it about? Craig, Give It Up was written for a friend who was beset by self-doubt, kind of suffering emotionally. And it was my reminding him that he had people who loved him, cared about him, and not to shut himself away. It is something about human beings that you can get some thoughts in your head and not let them go. And it's great that somebody has a community, a group of friends who would welcome them back. Let's listen to your song called Give It Up. You call me with your troubles, man. Can I speak the truth? What happened to your spirit? What happened to your youth? Rage against your demons, they're running over you. Despite all your good intentions, seems you're on the outside looking in. The joy we see is something that you just pretend. Candles burning low, stumble through the Some peace and trust that the day will come, you'll be more 
That was beautiful, Dave Gunders. Tell us about your decision to make that the leadoff song on an album. Do you remember the name of that album? Talking in Tongues. Give It Up is, you know, I had a few contenders. Give It Up I liked because I like the overall sound. It has a positive energy, good beat and melody. And I like the, you know, it, the content of the song is very positive. I think so. And can I just suggest the possibility it could be used? In a variety of contexts, when you are estranged from people, maybe you can get right back in if you can get some thoughts out of your head. Right, right. And, you know, that's what, that's what friends are for, to buoy you up so you have the confidence to, to, to do that, make those changes. And how is that friend doing, if you don't mind saying? Pandemic's been tough on him, but I check in. Nice. And how many friends have you written songs about? Well, I don't know. I think, um, I think you know, like... I can think of five or six. Well, I, I can't. <laughs> Am I your friend? Darn right. Is there a possibility... Well, let me just ask you. Do you know how many songs have been written about me? How many songs, Craig? Zero. Mm, it's high time. Do I have to get depressed and you have to cheer me up, get some thoughts in my head so you write a song about... Bringing me back from the dead? No, no, you don't have to get depressed. We'll come up with something else. Okay, give it up. Dave Gunders, our troubadour. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show. 